Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listen to? Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. pop crazy youngsters and welcome to the latest episode of chart music the podcast that snuffles around the crotch of a random episode of top of the pops i'm your host al needham and with me today are diddy david stubbs yeah i know that and tiddly taylor parks yeah hello all right <laughs> boys make my ears sing with the tales of the pop and interesting things that have occurred of late right taylor go for it well, you know, uh, same as ever, wasting my life too late now. <laughs> David, you're starting on a new book, aren't you? I am, yeah. I might as well sort of, you know, confide with the Pop Crows youngsters. Um, Good lad. It's, it's kind of a book about British comedy, a sort of history of British comedy. It's a similar Ooh. sort of scope and scale to um, the electronic music book I did, Mars Bar 1980. It's covering right. a similar sort of time, very late 19th century right through to the present day. Um, the tentative title is Can Men Be Funny? Ooh. Yeah, I've just been looking at a lot of Steptoe and Hancock recently. Oh, you poor actually. sod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. a chore that is. It's absolutely, absolutely. And sort of um, ruminating ruminating on um, them, you know, the whole Galton and Simpson trajectory, basically. Mm. Uh, and then I'll probably sort of following on immediately from them with um, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, you know, the porridge, likely yeah. lads, um, you know, men in confinement. Looking forward to that. Any, uh, any time scale on that? I don't just kind of crack on with it and get it done as soon as I can, basically. Yeah, you do that, David. Yeah. Yeah, as for me, nothing pop or interesting. I was a bit upset that I accidentally caught about 30 seconds of Glastonbury the other weekend because <laughs> I thought it was a Chelsea flower show. Then some twat in a beard and a guitar popped up and the, the remote was fucking grabbed pretty quickly. Yeah, quite right, too. See, I'm not saying this out of sort of some sort of pompous and deprived, but I've not seen a single second of uh, this Glastonbury. Well played. Um, I've been watching the World Cup, the Women's World Cup. Yes. But Glastonbury, though, I mean, you you used to put in some proper shifts in there, didn't you? Well, absolutely. Um, I mean, I went three times in total, um, all, yeah, all in a work capacity. Mm. I first went in 1987, when people like New Order and Elvis Costello uh, were, were... we're headlining. Um, at that point, it was still like Hell's Angels doing the security. You know, it was kind of. I mean, in, in sort of, you know, in, in owl parlance, it was like shaking Altamont, basically. Um, but uh, um, yeah, it was just pretty, pretty grim, basically. Um, me and this photographer Andy Catlin and and the the so-called Stud Brothers, Ben Marshall and Dominic Wills, were assigned to the um, you know 
reporting and photographing duties. And Andrew Catlin decided um, to hire a huge, great sort of Range Rover, which insisted on driving right onto the site. So every evening, you know, it was like trying to get out of Havana on the night of the revolution, you know, because we're trying to edge, inch this um, bloody Range Rover. We're all sitting in there feeling thoroughly invidious. Um, past all these kind of sort of, you know, crusties, you know, this sort of hostile mm. army of crusties who are refusing to, um, you know, and there's people kind of pushing the car behind us and then the people in front think that they're being rammed, you know, and uh, it was pretty hairy. Why why couldn't just sort of park 100 yards away near the gate? I don't know, but, you know, people are, people are weird about cars, don't they? They insist on finding a way to be as near as possible to... Uh, yeah. You know. Were you in a hotel? I was that time, yeah. I booked myself into a sort of single room and I booked the Stud Brothers into... Um, just a double bed in another room, actually. I didn't think they'd mind, you know. They, I thought it was a bit like Morecambe Wise, you know, something like that, yeah. or Laurel and Hardy. Um, but they kind of balked a little bit at that. That uh, they, I think they sorted something out. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it was a four-poster as well. It was very, very Fucking pleasant. Fucking hell. Yeah, you know. And then the last time I went to, um, it was for the NME in 1999. I made a kind of Dennis Law-type transfer from from Melody May to NME, you know, when he went from yeah. Man United to Man City, you know, in my sort of final years. So I was at the NME then. And, um, yeah, and they were talking about, you know, going down in a tent. And I was, and I thought he was just one of those kind of, you know, the new lad, you know, fetch that glass hammer-type sort of prank. Yeah. You know, nah, nah, come Tom on, you know, nah, you know, like the day comes, you know, come on then, come on then, where's the hotel batteries? And I, no, no, seriously. So I had to bomb it to millets and get a bloody tent. Fuck. Say. I know. And then, um, fortunately, there was a sort of junior enemy person there, and I kind of sort of persuaded him to um, put it up, you know, for me. You know, that's what we'd be doing. Because I was on the staff, you know. You know, doing me a favour, go on, lad, you'll go, you know. So it's kind of little things like this that will kind of see you go far. And the name of that writer was... I've forgotten. <laughs> Some poor godforsaken hack. Um, so, yeah. So, anyway, you know, I put the tent up in... Um, or had the tent put up for me in what in a sort of spot I'd selected, which was near this kind of bucolic, pleasant, babbling brook. Um, it was, and then, oh, that's all fine. It's all put up, you know, went off, enjoyed the kind of, you know, the festival and the burgers and what have you and the atmosphere. Mm. Decided to turn in at about 10 to 12 because everything pretty much wound up by then. I just, I just kind of assumed that, you know, like people would be kind of wending their way back to the tents, you know, and mm. turn in with me torch and me PG Woodhouse and, <laughs> um, you know, at 10 to midnight. And then I kind of realised that, you know, you could still hear the distant raging cannon of techno or whatever, you know, like oh, booming dear. away, like, you know. And also I realised that there was a kind of vast procession of people going down this babbling book. It turns out it's Piss Alley. You know, basically everyone's just using no. the kind of giant, you know, sort of collective urinal. So you've got the kind of the steam of fucking crusty urine, you know, kind of oh, like wafting its way up the hill. Plus, in, in a tent next to me, there's these two gabbling... Australian women, you know, playing some god awful music, you know, and they really, oh, and I kind of think, okay, well, you know, I, I could, it's Glastonbury, whatever, you know, and I thought they'll probably turn in soon or whatever, you know, but then one o'clock becomes two o'clock, two o'clock becomes three o'clock, oh. then four o'clock, and they're gabbling relentlessly away, and then I think, well, you know, this, this, it's about four thirty, five. I'm thinking, didn't you know, this merits a formal complaint, but then I think, mm. I look, a right tit, aren't oh, I? Put my head man. out. You should have done the full Keith <laughs> in Knots in May. I am in a tent. <laughs> you are in a tent. The yes. walls of a tent are very thin. <laughs> exactly, yes. Be hey, quiet! <laughs> I came to Glastonbury to escape the hurly-burly of uh, yes. life. <laughs> so, yeah, that was And then, of course, finally, these people, they kind of pass out. You know, they're going up, they're vomiting, piss alley. You know, mm. um, come back, pass out. And I thought, finally, I can sleep. But then, of course, an hour later, up comes the sun. And then Ugh, the, the, the greenhouse event... 
it's you know it's about forty eight degrees, and so I can't sleep in there, you know, and I have to kind of go staggering out on, you know, with one hour sleep under my belt. Um, why do people have tents at Glastonbury? What's the point? Who's is it? What, what are they for? Just have lockers or something like that. Just have stacked lockers. Nobody's going to sleep. Sounds fun, David. Taylor, yeah. did you ever partake in the in the Glastonbury experience? Yeah, I first went as a punter in nineteen ninety, and not yet so cynical. I did it properly. I hitchhiked down there with a mate whose family had some hippie credentials and knew the ways. So got a lift with what were then known as new age travellers in their van. Very Mm. nice people, it has to be said. Although (laughs) my main memory of that is that we stopped in a forest clearing for a tea and spliff break. And while the general standard of hygiene on this van was higher than you'd expect, all the tea mugs were encrusted with like black, schmutz on the inside obviously hadn't been washed for a long time Uh, so after fitting in quite well thus far with the itinerant lifestyle for four hours suddenly (laughs) my germophobia kicked in as did my upper working class lower middle class manners Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be rude um, and turn down this cup of tea with its dark crust bobbing on the surface. So I tipped a bit into the mud when no one was looking like the old mellow birds. Oh, yes. Then put, it, then put it down and went off for a stroll in the forest just to look at trees. Um, but I've been gone for about... The, the idea being I could go back and go, oh, I forgot my tea, what a shame. But oh, um, then after about 30 seconds, my mate appeared with one of the travellers holding my mug going, oh, you forgot your tea. Oh, thanks. Oh. I appreciate that. <laughs> but the next morning they said, do you want to buy some drugs before you go? Oh, great. Cheers. So we were taken <laughs> onto this old coach in the travellers field, like a magical mystery tour coach with all the seats taken out, just totally right. empty, just a metal tube with a double bed nailed into the floor right at the back with an old bloke on it. It was like a, being taken on a magical journey to meet their king, you know, mm. through the field, through the crowds, into this bus, right down the end. And there he was, this old man, like an unprepossessing figure who sold us some bathtub LSD, which was on a sheet of lined A4 file paper, like not even right. on blotting paper, like what you uh, put yeah. in a ring binder. Um, right. And Oh, your germophobia was all right with that, though, wasn't it? Well, you know, you've got to pick and choose, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I, what other people's LSD experiences are about as interesting as other people's dreams, it's fair to say that this was a little wild. Um, <laughs> and we took one after about an hour and a half. So, oh, it's not doing anything, let's take another. So we took another, and about two seconds later, it was like being in Tron. Uh, oh, then man. an hour later, the first one <laughs> came on, and all I can say is whichever sector of the psychic multiverse I ended up in. Um, Not the ideal choice for a feet-up, away-from-it-all, stress-busting weekend break for the busy professional. Best opt for a staycation. But, yeah, being 18, woke up the next morning right as rain. Sounds like the roadrunner approach to acid, isn't it? Doesn't work, hammer a bit harder. Doesn't Mm. work, stamp, stamp, stamp. (laughs) (laughs) See, I'm a drugs virgin. Um, I really don't, apart from the legal and arguably the most lethal one, alcohol, I've always felt the problem with drugs is that if you get a dodgy batch and it seems to happen quite a lot to some of my ex Melody Maker colleagues, then your statutory rights are very much affected. You know, you can't exactly yes. write you can't write to the cocaine board. Yeah. No, or ring up watchdog. Uh, that's right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. 
Uh, this turned out to be 70% Purcell, 30% rat poison. Um, so, yeah, I must admit, I've always genuinely managed to steer clear. Yeah, Esteranza's not going to do anything for you, is she? She's not. No, exactly. Yeah, so they're not going to kind of, yes, yeah. turn to Cyril Fletcher to lighten the mood afterwards or anything. Danny of Camberwell said, I'm sorry, but this has nothing to do with me. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. I think the only festivals I've ever been to, with, um, I used to go to the Essential Festival in London. Mm. Because any festival where you can finish the night having a shit in your own toilet, mm. that's the kind of festival I approve of. Yeah. Fuck this modern shit. I'm not interested in that. I want to talk about old stuff. And before we do that, as always, we do nothing on chart music before we give a shout out to all the lovely people who have realised that not ramming a bit of dollar down the chart music G-string for all the arse shaking we do is simply not on. So, the latest batch of people who have dropped $5 are Peter Longbottom, Paul Fern, Joanna Halpin, John Skilbeck, David Bartram, Oliver Gibson, Jeff Rideout, Ian, Gareth Hawker, David Watterson, Ross Evans, David Downey, Matt Nixer, Tony Coffey, William Stewart and Mark Affey. Oh man, can you imagine if David Bartram is actually the Dave Bartram, the lead singer of Show Waddy Waddy? Wow. That would be fucking amazing, wouldn't it? I, th- I think I think it could, could be. be Dave Bartram yeah, Junior. Or Dave Bartram the mm. third. I did actually see Shiwadi Wadi when they legendarily supported um Einstutz and Neubauten. Whoa back in nineteen eighty seven. What the fuck was that like? It was obviously meant to be some sort of feeble it was this guy that Steve O was a promoter and some some bizarre and he was managing Neubauten. And um I think, you know, it's obviously meant to be a bit of a kind of ironic joke, presumably at Shiwadi Wadi's expense, but everyone in the crowd was absolutely rooting for the wads, it has to be said. And yeah. um yeah, they put you in would. a lovely little storming set and uh, it was very nice. Whereas I like Neubauten themselves were a little bit off that night, I seem to recall, a bit over theatrical. Um, well, they got blown off the stage, didn't they? Well, you know, it's it's certainly, um, you know, the clapometer would certainly, I think, have favoured Shorty Waddy <laughs> that night. <laughs> and let us not forget the $3 patrons who've come in this month. Matthew Mara, Ben Tisdale, Paul Burns, Dave Morris, James Rook, Rich Simisker and Chetan Kadodwala. You know what, Shab? Some people, they tease one another, take pride in themselves keeping the other one down. But those people I just mentioned are not like that at all. (laughs) Not indeed. Excellent Mm. people. So, why don't you come and join them at patreon.com slash chartmusic and ram that tip down our G-string. Chartmusic, we're built like a truck and we bump for a buck. And of course, all our Patreon subscribers have the honour of picking out the latest chart music top ten. Oh, are we ready, boys? Hit the fucking music. A new entry at number ten, Serving Suggestion. Oh, yes. It's a drop of two places for this week's number nine. Here comes Chisholm. Up two from number ten to number eight... Taylor Pox's 20 Romantic Moments. The lingerer. It's a two-place jump from number eight to number six for your dog mates. This week's second highest new entry has crashed in at number five, The Granny Claps. <laughs> Down one place to number four, 
Simon Price and the receptionist from Hong Kong Fuet. Into the top three, and it's a two-place drop for last week's number one, Chicken Steven. Hey. Ah. Up two places to number two, it could only be Bomber Dog, which means... Britain's number one. The highest new entry, and this week's number one, Sarah B and Rakim. Oh, what a chart that is. <laughs> yeah. Nice to see some uh, young blood up the top there. And fucking yes, serving suggestion are finally in the charts. Yeah, yeah. I've been pulling for them. You know when you're a youth at school and you latch on to one band that's not done anything yet in the hope of them getting into the charts and you being able to go around and brag about how you wore their badge first? Yes. That's me and serving suggestion. <laughs> I'm telling you. I was so fucking upset last month when they didn't get in the charts. <laughs> I was still holding out hope for Dilute to Taste. Who yeah. Are very much the Bilbo Baggins to their Bay City Rollers. Yes, yeah. <laughs> definitely. So, yeah. uh, new entries and the Granny Claps, what are they all about? Like, uh, <coughs> it's a bit stars on 45, isn't it? The Granny Claps. The Granny Claps, yeah. They're like the mothers of servicemen. <laughs> no, I can see them doing a medley of um, of all the other music that's in the charts. You know, mm. mix up a bit, <laughs> mash up a bit of "Here Comes Jism" with um, "Granny Wants Your Spunk." <laughs> yeah, and of course, Sarah B and Rakim just speaks for itself. What a what an act they'd be. Mm. <laughs> Sarah B for president. <laughs> Sarah B is on the cut. The yes, <laughs> Sarah B never scared. Yes. <laughs> oh, we could go on all day. So if you want to get involved, www.patreon.com slash chart music. Go on, chuck some money in. We've just done a bonus podcast the other month. It's dead good. So this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, well, oh, what a treat we have for you this time. It's the first of a brand new mini series of sorts where I got sick of having to pick out episodes to cover and I forced Team Chart Music to look within themselves and pick out one episode they wanted to talk about. First up to bat is our old friend David Stubbs and he's gone for this episode from August the 26th 1976. So, David, without giving away too much, tell us why this one jumped out at you. Well, yeah, I I would certainly have seen it at the time. Mm. Um, I was kind of an avid Top of the Pops watcher, but I hadn't yet developed sort of critical consciousness at that Mm. point. You know, I mean... um, um, you know, I can't pretend that you know I was kind of listening to Bowie or whatever at that time. You know, I was. It was all the same to me. It was it was pop. It was great, and in that it could be Ten CC. It could be Paul Nicholas. It was pop. It was on after Tomorrow's World. That was fantastic as far as yeah. I was concerned. So you know, I had a Fuck kind of tomorrow. very uncritical. Um, yeah. Oddly enough, the most, and given certain sort of books that I've written recently, perhaps the most significant thing that appears tonight. I think, although I remember watching this episode. Um, it passed me by. I have to say that the more I look at 1976 Pulp Craze Youngsters, the more I like it. Partly because 1976 was one of my favourite years ever, but mainly because it's it's a very much an ignored period of pop music history. Yeah. It's a bit of a black hole for me. Well, it's the, this no man's land between glam and punk and new wave, mm. which is always interesting, even if it's not an especially glorious period for the British charts. I mean, the only 
reliably good chart music in this time is soul. Yes. Um, but beyond that, there's like this splatter of one-offs and what the fucks, and some of them are excellent and some of them are horrible in a manner that defies description. <laughs> um, and some of them are neither. They're just really, really weird, um, mm. just disconnected cultural artefacts, which are probably more rewarding now uh, when their weirdness can stand alone, context-free, yeah. than they were at the time when they would just look like cultural clutter, you know. Yeah. Um, but 76 especially, because there was something hallucinatory about the summer of 1976, and I'm mm. sure I'm not imagining this, right? Other painfully hot summers, like, like last year's, didn't really have that. They didn't create a new atmosphere, you know what I mean? They didn't give mm. people the sense they were living on a different planet, uh, whereas that one did. And it's not just me half remembering a time when I was still practically a toddler. I think it's quite well documented. I've got a great radio documentary somewhere, mm. which is just people talking about the summer of 1976. Ooh. And they all say the same thing, which is as the weeks went on, their sense of reality began to melt and strange things would start happening. Man, 1976 was uh, other people's 1967, you're saying? Yeah, mm. that's exactly what I'm saying, yeah. But I think the lack of that kind of thing now is probably just a consequence of technology because we don't have the opportunity to drift in the reality of our physical surroundings. Right? Mm. To, we don't feel as prone, too connected. We don't feel like so much of our experience is controlled and defined by the vagaries of the natural world, although that will probably change in the next few decades as the natural world starts to turn the screw. <laughs> yeah. But this episode, yeah. I think, will have gone out literally a couple of days before the weather finally broke. Yeah. Um, with the most almighty thunderstorms and about two years' worth of rain fell in about a week. The day before, actually, Taylor. Was it? Yes. Was it really? Yeah. There you go, you see. One of my earliest memories that summer breaking, mm. yeah, at the age of yeah. four, I knew the word reservoir because <laughs> it was on everyone's lips. Mm. Reservoir on everyone's lips and a house brick in everyone's cistern. <laughs> I think the sense of this in this episode seventy six, it was kind of a void, but interesting things were kind of filling it, you know, in this particular kind of juncture. And, I mean, punk is clearly beginning to happen, but there's not really any hint of it, you know, in the no. show at all. And there wasn't really... In it, I wasn't really conscious of punk at this point. I wasn't really conscious of it until sort of early 1977. I think that, you know, that's when it really started to kick in and all the various moral panics. You know, at this stage, it's beginning to happen, but nobody's really aware no. of it. But at the same time, the old order is changing. You know, there's the year that they did, like, the last waltz or whatever, and there's a whole kind of vanguard of musicians there from Dylan to Mitchell... Journey Mitchell and people like that who are about to kind of give way to like Patti Smith, the Ramones, television, all the talking heads, all that kind of thing. Um, and they may or may not know it. I mean, obviously, there's a sort of valedictory thing about that, um, about that, that particular thing. It's also, it was a big year for the Beatles. Obviously. Yes. There was a lot of Beatles activity that year. And I think that was kind of thing. I think even in the early 70s, people kept hankering for the idea that the Beatles were all going to get back mm. together. And I think that perhaps finally by 1976, with this big kind of, there was a lot of Beatles retrospection going on. They showed all the films and things yeah. like that, um, which is great for me. I loved all of that. But I think also it's like, so I think this one is probably knocked on the head. I don't think we're going to get the Beatles back. And then, you know, perhaps a sense of moving on from that. See, I, I still say the worst thing about the 60s and the 70s, culturally speaking, was this re-enchantment where after almost a century of inquiry and progress, 
this terrible mistake was made and it became almost received wisdom that it was this which had led us to Auschwitz and Hiroshima. And from here, the best plan was to pedal backwards and rediscover the arcane detail of witchcraft and astrology, um, which would surely save us as a people, you know, Mm -hmm. even as man was walking on the fucking moon. And although that didn't slow down any positive developments in science or technology itself, it did contribute culturally towards a sort of reacceptance of of wooliness and obscurantism and respect for for personal revelation you know Mm. which had some really damaging knock-on effects and in the short term ruined a lot of young people's conversations um but it had one positive effect which was to allow a great deal of weirdness into popular culture sort of spreading out into every corner, like even the the real darkest, shoddiest corners, and giving a lot of otherwise quite dull, low art a sort of gleam and a sparkle which makes it reasonably interesting, Mm. right? So, like, a lot of what's on this Top of the Pops is not objectively very good um, or especially vital. I mean, it's a low-energy period for the charts, just like 1986... And 1996, I would say. But unlike an equivalent episode from those years, there's all these grotesque frills and decorations Mm. and just weird stuff snatched out of the air, out of the culture, and bolted on. And that's what there is to talk about and think about on this episode. And it makes it more interesting and more enjoyable. Let's get stuck in. So, in the news this week, Jim Callaghan announces that he plans to step down as Prime Minister in 1980. Thames Water announces that the Thames is losing 15 million gallons a day due to the drought. Gerald Ford announces Bob Dole as his running mate in the forthcoming US presidential election. Idi Amin claims on Uganda Radio that the drought is God's punishment for the United Kingdom being a bunch of cunts. (laughs) BBC Radio London is criticised by the Department of the Environment for running a jingle which encourages housewives to save water by having a bath with the milkman. (laughs) John Thor of the Sweeney and Barry Foster of Van der Volk hand in a petition to 10 Downing Street asking the Prime Minister to mediate in a dispute between the Electricians' Union and Thames Television. The Rolling Stones have just played the largest gig in the UK so far when 200,000 people pitch up to see them at the Nebworth Festival. The Sunday People has just revealed that Kendo Nagasaki has become a faith healer and conducts surgeries out of his converted garage in Wolverhampton with the help of a spirit of an ancient samurai warrior. (laughs) Even sorts out sexual problems as well. Of course. But the big news this week is that the BBC have announced that Ruby Flipper, the in-house dancers at Top of the Pops who started a mere three months ago, are to be axed. Oh, no. The following news item from the Daily Mirror last Thursday reads as follows. Ruby Flopper. (laughs) Dance troupe told to go. This is the TV dance group that got off on the wrong foot. The group, 
Ruby Flipper, took over in May from Go-Go dancers, Pan's People on BBC One's Top of the Pops, but the Flipper turned out to be a flopper, and they're going to be dropped in a few weeks' time. The trouble was that the new group, four girls and three guys, were out of step with viewers. And the BBC said yesterday, We have had such a tremendous response from viewers who obviously miss Pants People that we think it is now best to bring back an all-girl dance group. Choreographer Flick Colbert, who formed both dance groups, has been told to find a new team for Top of the Pops. Mm. Oh, this is why we picked this one out, eh, David? Yeah, that's right. The opportunity to evaluate Ruby Flipper, which is long overdue yeah. for a podcast about Top of the Pops. Yeah. On the cover of The Enemy this week, nothing. It's not published due to strike action. Uh, Blue Oyster Cult were on last week. On the cover of the TV Times, Patrick Cargill. He's guesting with Barbara Windsor in the Saturday comedy show Nobody Does It Like Marty. The Marty, of course, being Marty Kane. I assumed it was Marty Scorsese. (laughs) (laughs) The number one LP in the UK at the moment is 20 Golden Greats by the Beach Boys. Over in America, the number one single is Don't Go Breaking My Heart by Elton John and Kiki D. And the number one LP in America is Frampton Comes Alive. By Peter Frampton, obviously. So, me boys, what were we doing in August of 1976? Probably about this time, I would have been... um, My dad worked for um, a firm called Dover Roller Shutters. Now, roller shutters, you know, that might seem a kind of mundane, light industrial thing, but um, tell you, you'd notice if they weren't attached to the backs of the lorries, Mm. I can assure you. Um, Anyway, the boss, Fred Dover, he had a house in Greenfield near Stalybridge or whatever. I got the princely sum of five pounds... Um, for like tidying up the um, yard Ooh. there, which I've never—I don't think I'd ever—I'd never actually been personally handed a five-pound note. Good you know, Lord. It came on, he peeled off a he, old Fred Dover. He peeled off a fiver, and I was just absolutely agog, you know. Oh I mean, man, Fred Dover was no JJ Barry. <laughs> oh, that's it? right. There was none of that. No charge. There, there was some yeah, yeah, charge. Yeah, there was some charge. Yeah, halcyon days, I suppose. But also mm. because it was the mid seventies boring days you know as well I mean you know prior to this that holiday I remember I just spent two or three weeks in the summer holidays doing nothing but I had a piece of hardboard set out and I just played sort of a version of crown ring balls with these gold kind of like hot wheels cars you know I just right you know across this sort of six foot sort of thing of hardboard and try and get them you know obviously the top if they went over the edge then you know all was lost but you know if you get them just as near the edge as possible you know ground to a halt and I played oh, that. man, it's like shove matchbox, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. I, I just did that every single day wow. for week, three weeks. The trouble was that I went to a different school from everybody else in the village, a little barrack and helmet, because um, they all went to the Boston Spa Conference. But being a Catholic, I was lobbed off to St. Michael's um, in Headingley, the Catholic school well, there. Boxes so senses. I didn't really, <laughs> St. Michael's, yeah. And so I didn't really have mates that I could go out and sort of play with, really, at that point. And uh, they know, were fucking heathen off. scum. They were going to burn in hell, though, David. Well, absolutely. So there was always that. You're you know, well out of those cunts. Exactly. Could hardly be associating with the Protestants. It would, uh, no. It was a burning offence. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> another thing that was happening to me at that point was I was a kind of reluctant member of. Um, the um, local youth football team. I lived in Barrack and Elmet, as I may have mentioned, the um, village mm. of Barrack and Elmet. We were called Barrack Spartans. 
and uh, nice. we were part of the um, Red Triangle League, which is kind of under 14s. The trouble was, we were all about a year <laughs> younger. Who the fuck were you playing? I don't know. What well, is the trouble? Red Triangle League sounds a bit Channel 4 to me, David. I know, yeah, yeah. Were, were you all naked and bombing each <laughs> other up against mountains or something? I, 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 we weren't particularly Spartan, you know. We all loved our, like, you know, hot crumpets and two-bar radiator grills and what have you. <laughs> but um, I... Managed to acquire, you know, somewhere like the the our, our fixture list, and um, the results were as follows: Barrack Spartans nil, Holbeck Wanderers eight. Barrack Spartans nil, Woodlesford ten. Shit. Barrack Spartans nil, New Miners Peacocks. Don't ask. Nine. Fuck. Barrack Spartans nil, St Kevin's ten. Barrack Spartans nil, Scottall Rovers fourteen. No, oh my God, Scottall Rovers. They were for They were men. These were men with hairy legs, basically playing against us like we kind of poor little naive, not need Paul Nicholas liking kids. It was just no comfort. It was desperate. We just got absolutely walloped every week. It was very demoralising. Terrible, Taylor. Um, no, I was four. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I've done it. I've done Fair. the only thing that I've got. Fair enough. All I remember is it was really hot, and then it rained. <laughs> I was an eight-year-old child, uh, obviously enjoying the summer holiday, and you know I was either trapped in the back of a Ford Cortina with my sister outside a pub called the Golden Ball, while my dad was in the pub, because it was that you know it was that it was that era when parenting consisted of taking your kids to the pub, locking them in a hot car, yep. bringing out a packet of crisps and a bottle of Coke with a straw in it. Yeah, a glass bottle of unrefrigerated Coke with a paper straw. Yeah, not even Coca-Cola. Right? I think it was Apollo, which was the, the the local variety. Begging me dad to put the radio on so I could listen to something other than me fucking sister whining. Uh, where the battery down? <laughs> and uh, I found a copy of Mayfair in his toolbox, which yeah, enlivened things somewhat. So I was either doing that or I was sat in the back garden organising something I call the Ladybird Olympics. You know, remember that the Montreal Olympics had just gone yeah. a couple oh, yeah. of weeks previously and there was a yeah. fucking shitload of ladybirds about. So I basically drew out an Olympic stadium and got loads of ladybirds. I even made my own Olympic village which consisted of a, a tin money box with a slot in the top with a bit of grass in it. So, you know, they, they had somewhere to stay. And um, some grasshoppers break in and, and murder a load of ladybirds. It was awful. <laughs> so basically this was just organised animal abuse. <laughs> well, I want animal abuse. I, I want hurting them. I want giving them steroids or anything, man. I want East Germany. <laughs> They're not there for your entertainment, Al. They're living creatures who want to live and breathe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they were all over the fucking shop, yeah, so they, they might were, as well be they? doing something worthwhile. Yeah, it was a plague. It was a fucking plague. It was hard, man, because, you know, they could do 100 metres, but that was pretty much it. You know, if they did the long jump, they weren't coming back. <laughs> uh, there was shit at the javelin. <laughs> it, it worked a lot better than my previous uh, animal-related sporting competition, which was me and my mates. Uh, we got some maggots out of his fridge, where his dad kept them for fishing. And got a Sabuto ball and tried to play maggot football, but that was fucking useless, man. <laughs> it was appalling. Yeah. Music wise, I mean, as I said earlier, 1976 really is a black hole for me 
because we'd moved house a year previously and on a new estate. So I didn't have the, the benefit of Tony Bones's mum taking me in to watch Top of the Pops. So consequently, it's very rare that I saw episodes of Top of the Pops in 1976 because ATV always had a fucking film on and my dad always insisted on watching it and it was it was a pre-portable television age. Yeah. So I missed out on a lot of Top of the Popses, which upsets me even now. The only one film that was on at this time that I really wanted to watch was King Kong versus Godzilla. I mean, dad wasn't having it. He deliberately put BBC two on second week of 1975 King Kong versus Godzilla was on ATV. And for the whole week, all the kids in Westglade infant school were banging on about it. And my dad wouldn't let me watch it because it was a load of fucking monsters chucking each other about. And it was a load of rammel. And so the next day I got in to school, this kid who hardly knew anyone, and was desperate to make friends. And someone came up to me and said, did you see it? Did you see it? And I said, no, what happened? And he just gave me this look of disgust. <laughs> and he walked off, and behind his shoulder he said, it was a draw. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks, Dad. Spoiler alert, Al, come well, on. Well, come on, and what else was it going to be? you got these two big fucking film studios, one in America, one in Japan. They're not. It's like uh, Muhammad Ali versus uh, Inoki, isn't it, the same year? yeah. yeah. <laughs> That 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 was that was pretty sad. Mm. That uh, I mean, it was that was another year. It, it was huge year, like Muhammad Ali stuff. I think it was the uh, the year that it was advertising beef the burgers. Um, you know the beef, yes. beef burgers and um, yeah, it was yeah, the one where he wanted these, a Leeds you know, United tracksuit, wasn't it? And that girl yeah, was bothering yeah, him. And, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and um, Ali, the black Superman. I think that was this year as well. He, In Zaire. In the charts this very week. Oh, there was in Zaire as well. There were a couple because there was in Zaire, yeah. Number five in the charts, down one, yeah. And and then there was also Ali, the black Superman, yes. you know. Don't catch me, you, you yeah. can. It's not as good as his, uh, who put the crack in the Liberty Bell? Ali, you know that song. Mm. Oh, yes, 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 yeah. yeah. See, it's weird. It's a sort of zenith. I mean, you know, we'll probably have all kinds of sort of more reflections on 1976. But there was a survey done at the time in terms of, like, levels of happiness. And people essentially, as well as, like, it being kind of, you know, the hottest recorded summer, et cetera, people were at their happiest in the UK in the year 1976 yeah. relative to sort of previous and subsequent mm. years. Um, it might have seemed a pretty kind of moribund year, and it was like punk and Thatcherism feeling that they had to kind of revive this desperate moribund time. Folk were happy. People yeah. were actually happier than they had been I before was. or since. I was a lot happier yep. in 1976 than I was in 1975. See, this is my yep. theory about the late 70s, in fact. that People think of the late 70s in terms of malaise. You know, this is, yeah. the, this is the historical received wisdom. Um, but in a way, I think that malaise was sort of a consequence of satiated boredom. And it's like the natural condition of over-evolved primates where survival is no longer a concern, right? That it's like uh, the social contract still held and inequality was at an all-time record low. And at least in the rich and therefore significant parts of the world, society had progressed to the point where people were talking about communist or anarchist takeovers, not as a liberation from tyranny, but because it was seemed like a logical next step. It's like, you know, we've we've gone as far as we could now. Nobody's starving. You know what I mean? Uh, and amidst all that paranoia and the sort of indefinable sense of decline that everyone remembers from the seventies, you get, say, a film as a film as ridiculously pure 
and absurdly open-hearted as Close Encounters of the Third Kind, right? Which I watched again recently. And in between the obligatory scenes of, you know, soulless suburban gloom and all of that kind of thing, there's this expression of that childlike, sort of Carl Sagan-style attitude towards the idea of contact with alien life, which seems mm. completely foreign today, now that we're so acutely and constantly aware of what generally happens when a technologically superior civilization meets a technologically inferior one, um, mm. and the fact that it's only an accident of evolution that humans found empathy and solidarity useful to our survival as a species. And there's no reason at all why aliens would develop along those lines. Far more likely that they would just come to eat. But in 1976, <laughs> we were spending millions sending signals into deep space, saying, here we yeah. are, come and get us. Yeah, and the carpenters. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot. I mean, I was, as a kid, I was reading a lot about things like the Bermuda Triangle and um, UFO. I was very, very kind of credulous. But there was a lot of that about yeah. in 1976. I remember there was John Lennon put on an album. It might have been the Rock and Roll On the back of one of his albums, he said, you know, he was talking about last October, um, I went outside and I saw a UFO. He just put that on you know, the other side of his album. You know, people, it, yeah. it was all over the shop. I read this book by this geezer, Brinsley Lepert, trench or something like that all about ufos and part of his theory was that the younger generation were themselves quite possibly aliens and this is accounted for their strangeness that they were actually visitors you know extraterrestrial visitors come to kind of reform mankind and um i lapped all yeah. of that up um you know but no you know people older and more sensitive to be more sensible than me all this yeah and it's partly same. a consequence of that re-enchantment that i mentioned before but it's also mm. it's boredom it's like well you know, we're not killing each other for a handful of berries anymore, but we're still not happy. So it's just this mm. desperation, mm. just looking outside the world and looking outside reality for something, just something to occupy us, you know, because we're not yeah. very good when we don't have to fight for things. Actually, it was Francis Fukuyama in his book, The End of History. He said that the only thing that might jeopardise this, what he saw as this kind of impending sort of millennium of peace and social democracy might just be that people get bored and decide just to sort of kick up for the sake of it, basically. Uh, that didn't take long, did it? No, no. <laughs> See, we need to bring back It's a Knockout, don't we? <laughs> mm. This is the says a lot about the last days of détente, you know, that the, the, <laughs> the, the nations of Western Europe would dress up as gigantic foam rubber chefs. <laughs> so what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One starts the day at five past seven with a double bill of the Open University before shutting down for an hour and 25 minutes. Then it's Stop the Pigeon, Jack and Ora with Judy Dench, Devlin the kids' drama series about an American stunt motorcyclist, then Rhubarb, and then The Girl and the Fox before they go to Scarborough for the England versus the West Indies in the one-day International Prudential Trophy. After closing down for 20 minutes, they start the afternoon with On the Move with Bob Hoskins and Martin Shaw. The news, Bagpuss, then back to the cricket for the afternoon session. After regional news in your area, it's a repeat of that day's play school. Then here come the double-deckers, the Canadian goose drama series Dan Gibson's Nature Family, the Magic Roundabout, the evening news with Peter Woods, Nationwide, and they've just finished Bellamy's Europe, where David Bellamy dosses around southern Italy for a bit and sees how mozzarella is made. From actual buffalo milk, 
Fucking hell, that must have been a revelation in 1976, <laughs> mozzarella. Oh, never heard of it. Or avocado. BBC Two kicks off at 6.40am with a triple bill of the Open University before closing down for three hours, coming back hard at 11 with Play School. Then it closes down for another five hours before picking up the final session of the cricket. They're just about to start a ten-minute interval before news on two. Still doing intervals back then. Mental. (laughs) ITV begins the day with Howell Bennett reading Toby's Flying Ark, followed by Seeing and Doing, the medical show Exploration Man. Then a sea captain talks about his life in flashback. Then it's Stingray, Survival... A cartoon, animal quackers, and then Bungle makes a picture of a squirrel in rainbow. After the antique show Trash or Treasure, it's Leonard Parking with First Report, followed by regional news in your area, Crown Court, Mavis Nicholson talks to Christmas Humphreys, a former Old Bailey judge who became a Buddhist and is now an evangelist of homeopathic medicine in the best of good afternoon. Then it's the drama series Dorothy and Clive, the documentary The Shoot and the Gamekeeper, The Lone Ranger, The Time Tunnel, The News, Regional News in Your Area, A Domestic Between Hugh and Meg Mortimer in Crossroads, and then now 20 minutes into the film, Those Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines. Oh, fuck's sake. Dad's definitely got that on. (laughs) All right then, pop craze youngsters. You know how we go about on chart music. We may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on chart music more than we have. Hang on a minute. They've been on chart music more than we have. That's not true. Ooh. That's what you just said. You mean they've been on top of the pop more than we have? Oh, fuck, 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 fuck. (laughs) <laughs> They've been on top of the pops more than we have. Thank you, Taylor. I was going to say, the one of the few claims <laughs> I can make is that I've been on chart music more than yes. any of these people. <laughs> <laughs> if we don't get on with this, you know, I'm not going to be home in time for Top of the Pops. p.m. on August the 26th, 1976, and we are greeted by the sight of tonight's host in a green suit with a jazzy tie, fiddling about with a presumably expensive watch, Noel Edmonds. At the moment, he's still the leonine king of the Radio 1 jungle, sat upon the breakfast throne, where this morning he handed off to Tony Blackburn for a couple of hours before the people of Weymouth undergo an invasion by Dave Lee Travis and the Radio 1 Roadshow. And it goes without saying that Edmonds is already making his move from radio to TV. Not only is he currently presenting the magic and science show Illusionists on BBC Two on Wednesday evenings, he's also spending a lot of time with Keith Chegwin, John Craven and Posh Paws deep in the bowels of Television Centre as he prepares to unleash the multicoloured swap shop upon the youth of Britain. A week after this episode, he was the subject of a three-part feature in the Daily Mirror entitled Noel Edmonds, the first disc jockey superstar, which began, he is young, fit and healthy. 
as bright as the moon <laughs> and good-looking enough to be a movie star. It is not inconceivable that one day he might be a movie star. Can you imagine Noel Edmonds in Taxi Driver or The Empire Strikes Back? <laughs> no, they, they already had Patrick Cargill earmarked for that. <laughs> Are you talking to me? No, it's, I've seen Noel Edmonds in a film about a man who gets stuck halfway through his transformation into a werewolf. But uh, yes. otherwise... Uh, as, as bright as the moon. I quite like that. Yes. <laughs> sort yes. of brightish, but... Hmm. The moon is not bright. The moon yeah. just reflects the sun. Yep. Mm. As bright as the just moon. Just saying. Yeah, nicely subtly backhanded there, I thought. David, we've already discovered that you and your father actually called Noel Edmonds your god throughout the mid-70s. So, yeah. you know, obvious first question, were you a swap shop person at this time? Oh, yeah, I absolutely was. Yeah, definitely. I used to sort of bomb around to the news agents and, like, get a, an obscene amount, you know, about two or three pounds of, like, confectionery and um, scarf all of that all, all the way through, um, yeah, swap shop. Never actually swapped anything. I was a kind of a lurker, as it were. You know, I sort of lived mm. vicariously through all of the other swaps. Um, but, um, um, yeah, and Noel Edmonds, I, you know, my, my, my dad, God or whatever, you know, I, I, I just simply, I just sort of deep faith in Noel Edmonds, um, you know, the way that people do with DJs. But it's only retrospectively you can think all he was doing was being basically. Yes, he's <laughs> not generating an awful lot of light. In fact, I mean this this opening routine, it's just like it's it's not even a joke. It's just a sort of no. it's what is it meant to be? You know, and it's just, it's yeah. a bit like, it's just, it's Noel and he's doing stuff. You know, it's a bit like Chris Evans. If you go to 1996 and you see Chris Evans' attempts mm. at quips, it's just like, they're not even half jokes. They're just sort of, you know, they're just these kind of emissions. Just passes the time, doesn't yeah. it? It's just emissions of lightheartedness that don't actually have any kind of wit or sense about them. I learned the other day that there's very few full episodes of Swap Shop in existence because, uh, it's all down to the BBC um, wiping the tapes in the late 80s so they could flog them onto television stations in Australia. Ah. So they could, they could I don't know, tape kangaroo races or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Which is a great loss because imagine that there's a lot of band performances and interviews that are, are, are just gone now. Your first instinct is to think, oh, what terrible cultural vandalism. But you, Well, no, the people were thinking, who in their right mind would ever want to watch a full episode of Swap Shop ever <laughs> Me? again? Me? I mean, the final episode is is available in its entirety. Yeah, it is. I'm literally five minutes walk away from the field that Keith Chegwin stood in when they did a swaparama in Nottingham. <laughs> and you know, you know how they did that competition where they put a multicoloured swap shop sticker somewhere, and the first kid who found it won a I don't know won a satin bomber jacket with Keith Chegwin's yeah. face on the back. Um, that stood for years at the back of the Mushy Pea stall in uh, Victoria Market. <laughs> and then yeah. when that was pulled down, they just got rid of the sticker, and it's like, oh, you stupid cunts. Mm. I would have had that. Uh, Nottingham, so fucking uh, shit with its heritage. Every town has its ups and downs. <laughs> I think you could sort of do some sort of psychogeographical psych- walking tour, definitely, you know. Yeah. Sort of- Putting out these kind of various cultural points, I'd I'd go on it. Yeah, yeah, that's the hedge where Keith Chegwin hid his <laughs> bottle of vodka <laughs> while he was on camera. 
Well, I mean, before we get stuck into uh, Nolan 1976, we we have to discuss the interview that he gave to the Guardian only last month. It was uh, it was quite interesting, wasn't it, chaps? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Although it's par for the course these yes. days. I mean, he says right. I think the headline on this interview is he says, "I confuse mm. people," mm. Um, but he no. doesn't really <laughs> because everything is perfectly understandable as soon as you understand the context that this is the straightest, squarest man in the world and he's gone mad. Um, This is how it would happen. It's completely in order that things would unfold like this. He's just another bloke who had a traumatic midlife crisis and lost his mind. Mm. But he's shaking Ike. (laughs) He's he's another celebrity casualty. Um, who's just gone off the rails? But yeah, when people get knobbed off by the BBC, they, they don't take it well, do they? No, because it's it's like a job fluff. Noel Evans is used to gravy trains, right? If you remember back in the seventies, mm. he would do any advert that he was asked to do, but it wasn't all yeah. you know, thrusting private free enterprise like pocketeers and stuff. He would also do British Leyland and British Gas. Yeah. And all this, he was yeah. always on the public sector gravy. Train. Rally bikes, hey? right? He did a he did an advert for rally bikes. Were they uh, state owned? He'd be him right uh, knocking about on his racer, and loads <laughs> of people in uh, in choppers and chippers and grifters would go, "I've got a rally." And right at the end, they they just pointed at him and said, "Noel's got a rally." Oh, which is a bit disturbing in uh, in a 2019 mm. context, isn't uh, it? Yeah. But it, it's it's strange. I mean, obviously, Jim and Savile, you know, this is the age of the train. And, and that, like, you know, there was such deep faith and trust in these mm. people that they were being trusted with kind of endorsing these great national yes. institutions or whatever. And I'm sure that that's what they kind of approached. And was, well, mm. I'm sure there was deep trust in him, you know, bizarrely enough. And I think it's absolutely true what Taylor says. Yeah, he's, he, he kind of lost his, his mind. But I always thought there was a, with, there's a certain kind of bloke with a certain generation that's kind of a bit kind of goodies and with it in the 1970s or whatever and flare trans or what have you that there's always this latent sort of potential undercurrent of of the sort of madness the sort of nonsense that eventually he come, ends up coming coming out with you know that and i suppose he's not really mm. been surrounded that much in his life and people saying noel you're talking shit mm. yeah and also he's in a position where people hang on his every yeah. word but there's no core mm. there's nothing you know he doesn't have any substance no. Um, so as soon as his reason for existing is taken away, um, and people, he's he's still expected to keep talking, but there's nothing to link, there's nothing to introduce, so he has yeah. to look into himself, and all he sees is this this great gaping emptiness, yeah. Um, yeah. and that's when that's when people go, you know, that's when yeah. people, that's when the, the cuckoo flies out of their forehead on a spring and i talk about you know like having that 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 kind of faith that we have i keep coming back to that and then of course he himself then places faith in all of this kind of sub-pseudo-scientific nonsense and yeah and frankly you know talking about Mm. cancer you know my dear mum you know died of cancer and you know for someone like noel Edens to suggest that the reason that she succumbed is because she allowed herself to get down in the dumps you know there wasn't enough positive thinking is absolutely obscene you know she died Mm. because it's a terminal illness and um you know, the fact that he kind of harbours complete yeah. nonsense like that. And when, you know, when he's questioned on it, he just said, just because, because, you know, it's almost like, I'm Noel Edmonds. It's, you know, yeah. I, 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 I reckon yeah. it. That should be enough. But what he does is he acts as though 
he's he knows better. He's very superior. It's like he tries to do a sort of mind trick on you and like, ha, ah, but have you ever thought of like talks yeah. down to you, right? As though, and this is this has always been there, right? He always for reasons of his own because he's a small man in a big world, you know. He always has to be on top. The joke is never mm. on him, right? Mm. His whole career um is about <laughs> like doing funny phone calls and gotchas and dropping gunge on people, you know, mm. and uh, playfully hitting members of the top of the pops audience with his phone topped yes. microphone. He's always in control and everyone else yeah. is the butt of the joke. It's never him. Yeah. It's bad for people, that yeah. sort of thing. It's bad for people. He needed yeah. at some point in about 1980 to be, you know, debagged mm. on national television or something. <laughs> Would have would have saved his sanity in the mm. end. I think the key part of the interview for me was the interviewer uh, pulled him up about his uh, comments on immigration, where he said that the bus yeah. was full, and uh, he says the interview says could he clarify mm. his position, and uh, it goes as follows. He asks me how many people I think are living in the UK. I say it's around about sixty-five million. No, it's not. He chuckles almost sympathetically. Why would you ever believe a number that has been produced by the people who said we were giving the EU $350 million a week? It's a fiction. It's actually at least $75 million. I ask him where he gets his information from. There is a very simple way of working out for yourself what the real population of the country is, he said. It's the three Fs. Food, feces, feces. and farewells. Food is very tightly regulated because it has to be for obvious reasons. Feces is the same. We know how much shit and piss is going through the system. And as for farewells, we have a pretty good idea how many people are buried or cremated each year. It doesn't quite explain how he has managed to accurately gauge the UK population, but this is classic Edmunds, creating a diversion, inventing an acronym, and packaging it up in unswerving conviction. Well, you know, the idea of yeah. Noel Edmunds counting people's shit, that's, yeah. that's quite <laughs> that's alarming. A, that's, yeah. That was my favourite bit in the interview as well. Yeah. He's the only man that could oh, make you think man. Chris Tarrant was a dude. Yes, feces and farewell it adds a sort of glib contours of somebody that actually really knows what they're talking about and explaining it cleverly in lay terms mm. but it's complete bollocks exactly anyway uh, a bloke called Sam Delaney who did that interview he runs a podcast called Top Flight Time Machine mm. and uh, in a couple of episodes he goes into detail about his encounter with Edmund so you know if you want to get it from the horse's mouth if you will uh, chuck him a tab you know you can listen to all the podcasts it's allowed Anyway, Edmunds goes straight into the chart rundown and, oh, as always, there's some very choice images on display, isn't there? What's your favourites? There's a lot of foreign solo artists in yes. this week's chart. There's uh, Jorge Zamfir, the yes. Romanian panpipe stylist. For yeah, Doina de Jale. Yeah, for a dinner Sorry, party Romanian with a people. difference. A small yeah. difference. Uh, yeah, it's, it's that tune that you don't know the name of, but you do know it. The kind of like Timothee advert music that goes, yeah, and just like that, and Demis Roussos in a hat made out of the mastermind chair. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's very stylish. Yeah, he, he looks looks pretty good in that, doesn't he? That what else? There, Billy Joe Spears smiling yes. like somebody's mother standing on top of a building right on the edge just before she stamps on her child's clinging fingers and sends <laughs> them plummeting to their death. Uh, 
and the, oh, the chai lights. Oh, man, Gaudy, yes. big lapel suits and oversized bow ties. The colour of an ancient, unwashable egg stain. Yes. Like, They're fucking huge, aren't they? Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> like being attacked by giant butterflies. Yeah, but they. what's weirdest about it is that I don't know if they're like sort of Ronnie Corbett style lemon v-neck jumpers or a mm. sheet of cardboard pushed down the front, but there's like a yeah. weird sort of bl- breastplate under the suit in the <laughs> same colour. It's a really yeah. confusing image. It's like part sort of show busy supper club and part like the Pluto branch of Primark. Uh, <laughs> but... But then, on the other hand, Tavares look like authentically bad motherfuckers. There's a yes. really brilliant picture of them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the ones I picked out were Judge Dredd uh, oh, with yeah. Evivra yep. suspenders in a one-piece bathing suit and a straw boater looking like he's riding a dolphin. <laughs> uh, the white girl in the Starland vocal band with her chin shorn off and the rest of her face obscured by lettering. Rod Stewart under really bad lighting, making him look like Frankenstein in Borstal. <laughs> Agneta's face completely obscured by the number 16. Uh-huh. The lead singer of Dr. Hook with a fucking massive trampy beard demonstrating that Dr. Hook actually smartened up their look in the late 70s. <laughs> and... And that picture of status quo, fucking hell. Oh, yeah. It's awful. Only one of them's face you can actually see in full. <laughs> oh, and there's also 5,000 volts. Oh, yes. Having divested themselves of Tina Charles and that woman who gets Basil Fawlty's handprints on her tits in Fawlty <laughs> yes. Towers. And now they've got like this lead singer who <laughs> looks like an art man animations creation with a, yes. like a, a blonde Norman helmet of hair. Yes. I mean, looking at this, this, this chart rundown, I was you know, the, the words of the Comte de Lautriamont, the proto-surrealist, and he talks at one point in Legendarily about a chance meeting on a dissecting table of a sewing machine and an umbrella, and that's one of the great sort of founding thoughts of surrealism. And I, I get that kind of feeling about the chart. Yes. You, know, you just get Judge Dredd, Twiggy, Twiggy's in the charts, Biddy Joe Spears, 5,000 yeah. volts, and, you know, that's definitely... Definitely what uh, immediately occurs to me. Yeah, there was a lot of, as I've mentioned before, there's a lot of Judge Dredd being played in Next Door's. It was so, yeah, and it was so strange because it was just unmentioned. It was, who was Judge Dredd? Why is he never on? Why is he never mentioned? And, um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was quite, even at the, um, even at the tender age of, um, well, nearly 14, as it was at this point, I I still haven't solved the mystery of Judge Dredd. Because I've I've already spoke about John Flynn, my, uh, my next door neighbour, who's the mobile DJ who played loads of Judge Dredd. And around about this time, I think my dad banged on his front door and, and said, John, you've got to stop playing your Judge Dredd records. My five-year-old daughter's uh, in the living room singing Up With The Cock. <laughs> <laughs> he was amazing. I actually had a conversation with my mum about him a bit more after we mentioned him on chart music. And there was one time when certain people on the street actually formed a posse to go and beat him up. And he heard about it and he just came out into the middle of the street in his vest and pants and stood on his head and said, come on then. And (laughs) they backed away. Bless him. (laughs) 
Rundown, we plunge straight into the first song of the night, Blinded by the Light by Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Born in Johannesburg in 1940, Manfred Lubowicz worked as a jazz pianist in the late 50s and recorded two LPs in a band called The Vikings, the first rock and roll band in South Africa. After realising that apartheid was a bag of cats' arseholes, he emigrated to the UK in 1961 and got a gig writing for the magazine Jazz News under the pseudonym Manfred Mann, in tribute to the jazz drummer Shelley Mann. In 1962, he met the drummer Mike Hug at Clacton Bucklands and they formed the Man Hug Blues Brothers, who signed to HMV in 1963, changing their name to Manfred Mann. The group would go on to score 13 top 10 hits in the UK, including three number ones, Do Wa Diddy Diddy in 1964, Pretty Flamingo in 1966 and The Mighty Quinn in 1968, but the band split up in 1969, leaving Mann to team up with Hogg once again to form an experimental jazz rock band called Manfred Mann Chapter 3. After two years and two LPs, Chapter 3 split up, and Mann immediately formed Manfred Mann's Earth Band, making their first, and before this year, only chart appearance in October of 1973 when Joybringer got to number 9. This single, a cover of the opening track on Bruce Springsteen's debut LP, Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey, is the follow-up to Spirit in the Night, another Springsteen cover which failed to chart. It's the lead cut from the LP The Roaring Silence, which will be released tomorrow, and the single has just entered the chart at number 41. I mean, this is mint, isn't it? I've got to say, this is this would be the perfect introduction to rock music for a youth my age. Yeah, I was very taken with this at the time, definitely. But marginally less so now. Um, just a small note about wearing a sailor suit, you know, as he is in that kind of... It's very, yes. very 1976. There's so much that's so it 1976 is, about this episode, and that's definitely one of them. But, I mean, because oddly enough, you know when people talk about the first album that they got, and they kind of lie a bit, you know, of course, well, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was Aladdin Sane, you know, I got it when I was nine, you know. Yes. My first album I ever bought was Manfred Mann's Greatest Hits, because it was for 50p at Tesco in the um, Arndale Centre in Crossgates. And... Basically, I it was my one album, and I extracted every sort of atom of joy that could possibly be extracted from that. You know, I wasn't quite sure I liked it at first, but by gum, I was going to learn to like it. And I pretty yes. much extracted everything that could possibly be extracted from a, an anthology of Manfred Mann's 60s hits, you know, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1... Um, do I, Diddy D, Pretty Flamingo, etc., etc. If you gotta go, go now, which is pretty saucy stuff. Yes. Um, but yeah, and then seeing them now, I thought, wow. So it's got all the kind of, and now they've got electric, you know. So I love that. Yes. I love that. So I was, you know, I, I was bedazzled. I was bewitched by this when I, when I saw it, and um, mm. you know, looking at it now, and it's, I think you're right. It's, it's a good, it's a good sort of like, you know, swizzy sort of intro to rock. It is essentially rock, really. It's just this usual. And a great intro mm. to this episode, mm. I feel. Mm. Yeah, well, it, it works because for all its sort of prog pop musicianliness, it's actually a really gimmicky record yes. and a sort of a nicely tasteless one. I mean, I mean that as a compliment, you know. So it works as a hit and it works as fun and it doesn't take up space that anyone else would have been using, yes. you know. 
Um, and I mean, the nicest thing about this period generally, by which I mean, I suppose, 72 to 77, is that for rock bands with any hope of making the charts, freakiness was the default. Yeah. Um, if you were young and pretty and pop, you could do the boys next door thing, mm. you know. But otherwise, you'd just go out there looking like space truckers <laughs> and emit bleeping noises, mm. you know. And this was commercial. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I recently I got re-obsessed with that record, Standing in the Road by Blackfoot Sue, right. um, which is amazing. It's just pure, grimy hypnosis. But, I mean, you know, they're a bunch of, like, hairy lags piling out the back of a transit van but it's that same thing of proper musicians like grown men heavy people mm. presenting as a pop group you know like it's like sort of presenting as freaks and it was which was a sort of pop imperative of the time which forced these people to do something in terms of presentation that was at least halfway interesting mm. or at worst quite funny uh not just visual presentation but the way they're the way the music was presented as well. Yeah. Put a nice uh, nice freaky edge on everything. Mm. And that's what makes this good. It's interesting that it was a Springsteen cover, because Springsteen himself hadn't managed to um, glean a hit out of this, as far as I can make out. Um, He'd done nothing in the UK. I don't think it was quite a household name at that point, yeah. And this sounds nothing like mm. his version. It pisses on yeah, it from an yeah. enormous height. From the from the top of the roller coaster in that park, he keeps going on about. <laughs> I'd say, yeah. And there's actually sort of yeah, the clarity in the lyric. I mean, the lyric just appears to be apparently just a tour around a rhyming dictionary. Basically, it's almost like kind of in joke, mm. you know, Springsteen the lyrics. So it's quite odd. Little early pearly came by in a curly whirly and asked me if I needed a ride. Well, you know, yeah. Well, it's it's one of those songs influenced by the Bob Dylan songs that yes. Bob Dylan dashed off in the studio in five minutes. Right. So <laughs> yeah. a lot of people. Mm this about Dylan right because he was you know one of the greatest lyric writers of all time but those were the days when you had to put out two albums a year mm. and nobody can write 25 lyrics of that standard mm. every yeah. year however much speed they're taking mm. so there's a bit of strong element of subterranean homesick blues definitely I suppose about this lyric yeah but I mean there's five or six or seven songs a year from the mid 60s of Dylan that are at that level mm. Like, really good. And the rest of it is just filler, like everybody else did. But the difference was, when the Beatles dashed off a lyric in five minutes, it went, uh, my love, don't give me presents. I know that she's no peasant. <laughs> you know, it was Dylan dashed off a lyric in five minutes and you got, you know, Ma Rainey and Beethoven once unwrapped a bedroll tuba players now rehearse around the flagpole. Yeah, but I'd sooner listen to She's a Woman than any of Dylan's stuff. Yeah, that's a that's a reasonable thing to say, I suppose. But the thing is, because he was writing songs in between that, like Visions of Johanna, Subterranean Homesick Blues, It's All Right, Mara Money Bleeding, My Back Pages, Can You Please Crawl Out Your Window, all of which are gen- genuinely great lyrics. People assume that he was more than human and that all this other stuff as it emitted from the same orifice, must really mean something too. And even though it just Mm. sounded like a witty, literate bloke out of his head on drugs, writing down the first thing that came into his head, no, it couldn't be that. It must be more than that. What does it mean, man? What does it mean? Mm. You know, worthy of deep examination. Mm. Now, I don't think Bruce Springsteen was daft enough to think that. And I think he was just having fun here. But it's a bit unrewarding to hear inferior versions of somebody else's 
amphetamine babble, <laughs> you know, even yeah. even relatively high end versions like this. But by 1976, were people analysing lyrics? Because, you know, I, I actually did something I really didn't want to do uh, the other week and, and looked at the lyrics to this song, which I have absolutely no clue about and didn't care. The only one that jumped out to me was Curly Whirler. <laughs> because that was, you know, that was visions of Terry Scott dressed up as a schoolboy. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, at that age, and probably, you know, even if I'd have been a teenager... The lyrics were just gibberish, and it didn't matter because that's what lyrics were. I mean, for for just to prove to you that nobody knew the lyrics of this song, the first line of the verse is it says "bummers," mm. <laughs> you know, drummers, bummers, Indians in the summer. I mean, if that had been known about, that would have gone right around the playground. Yeah, yeah nobody yeah. was going to miss that. Oh, do you? If you had that song about bummers. Yeah, it would have been relaxed before its time. Yeah, that—that's the whole thing about about Springsteen. That's part, part of the problem. But I think he's not really—he's not exactly a kind of lucid lyricist. He's, he has a lot of kind of slurring and emoting. And really, it seems like for me, the whole thing about Springsteen is that he's a kind of—he's a signifier of a certain kind of sort of passion and kind of wrestling with his emotions and open heart and open chested mm. and all that kind of stuff. He just—and you know, then you get a problem with that, you know. So it's just all slur this, and that's the big problem with uh, Born in the USA. You know, she couldn't believe it was misinterpreted. Yes. He said, Do you didn't listen to the verse, but no one's listening to <laughs> I was born in the USA. You know, it's no wonder people just thought it was an anthem. Yeah. You know, it's, nobody's, nobody's listening to that. Nobody can. Yeah. But it's worth talking yeah. about Dylan because, you know, Manfred Mann, there were, you know, one of the, one of the many bands who were uh, exponents of, of Dylan. And now, you know, this is the second... Bruce Springsteen's single on the bars. They're obviously seeing something mm. in him that they saw in Dylan. Mm. Yeah, she'd learn to write their own song. Uh, More profitable. Yes. The worst, actually, the worst thing about the lyric to this song that always bothers me is the chorus. It says, "Blinded by yeah. the light, revved up like a douche, douche, deuce. another deuce, another runner in the." I, I can only hear "Blinded by the night, revved up like a douche." Yeah. Another and runner what, in the night. It just makes me think of all those brainless, ultra basic bros on shit cocaine yeah. in the town centre on a Saturday night. Go, you know, like massive shirts and tiny haircuts. Yes. You know, giving it, like, giving it a big one. Mm. But I mean, the great thing about this song that got me into trouble at time was uh, was the bit where it goes. Because every time that came on, I would grab the nearest knob to me, whether it was the radio or the car radio or the tele or even, you know, the the gas hob and just crank it right up really slowly and methodically. (laughs) I just feel the power of rock surge through me. None of this bothers the audience. We're all doing the Frankenstein to a man. (laughs) Yeah. But I think it's too hot to do anything else in the studio. Because yeah, if you look, they got a massive fan going round in the background at yes. the back of the stage just to stop the musicians from keeling over. Yes. <laughs> so the following week, Blinded by the Light leapt 15 places to number 26 and three weeks later it got to number six, its highest position. Over in America, though, it would take six months for it to get all the way to number one for a week in February 1977. The follow-up, 
questions would fail to chart, but they'd have one more top 10 hit when Davies on the Road again got to number six for two weeks in June of 1978. And apart from an extended break in the 90s, Manfred Mann's Earth Band have never split up. What an excessively sensible way to get this edition of Top of the Pops underway. That's Manfred Mann's Earth Band, and they were blinded by the lights. Now, stop whatever you're doing, particularly if you're doing that, because at this particular juncture, you definitely should be dancing with the Bee Gees. alone in the inky black void at the back of the studio where he belongs informs us that you can take heed of the title of the next song You Should Be Dancing by the Bee Gees Spawned on the Isle of Man in the late 40s the Gibb brothers Barry, Morris and Robin were relocated to Manchester in the early 50s where they eventually formed a skiffle band called the Rattlesnakes In 1958, the family emigrated to the outskirts of Brisbane, Australia, and the brothers made their debut performance as a singing troupe at the Red Cliff Speedway, performing on the back of a truck which went round the oval while people lobbed money at them. In 1962, they were introduced to a local DJ who landed them a support gig for Chubby Checker, and they sound their first record deal a year later. After 10 flop singles on the bounce, they finally got to number 5 in Australia and number 1 in New Zealand in 1966 with Spicks and Specs, but they had had enough of the Antipodes and moved to London a year later, after a demo sent by their dad to Brian Epstein was passed on to Robert Stigwood, who signed them to a five-year deal with Polydor. Their first UK single, New York Mining Disaster, got to number 12 in May of 1967. The follow-up, Words, only got to number 41, but their third single, Massachusetts, got to number one for four weeks in October of 1967. They'd have four more top ten hits in the late 60s, including another number one with I've Gotta Get a Message to You in September of 1968, but they'd split up in December of 1969, only to reform in the late summer of 1970. By 1974, however, they were well up Arsenal Street, being reduced to playing the Batley Variety Club. But on the advice of their American label, they were encouraged to settle in the US, work with the producer Arif Mardin, and have a go at the new dance styles that were knocking about, which eventually resulted in the LP main course and the single Jive Talking, which became their second US number one and got to number five for two weeks in August of 1975. This is the follow-up, the first track from the forthcoming LP Children of the World, and it's up this week from number nine to number six. First of all, this Edmund's introduction. It's very strange. It's Mm. weird. When we first started doing this, it looked really weird to see these late 70s Top of the Pops where you start off with 
the presenter alone in a void yeah. delivering pre-recorded links. But in fact, it seems to be how they did it every week yeah. for a few years. And then yeah. as it goes on, little organised crowds of girls are slowly added into the yeah. picture. Um it's really it's like it's like he's completely separate from the acts like he's not in the same room as them like yeah. he's off backstage playing Yahtzee with Sir Walter Walker and yes. John Gurrier where they're on you know like yes yes you can make use of my helicopter if it comes to it you know <laughs> then he has this brief probationary period with the crowd until yeah. finally he achieves redemption and he's allowed out into the studio. Mm. It's like when you reintroduce a, a lion or something back to the wild. <laughs> yes, it is. Just, you know, you wander about the cage for a bit. Okay, cage doors open. Now you can have a sniff around, and now you can run free amongst, <laughs> yeah, yeah, amongst yeah. the girls. But depressingly, you've got to say, despite the fact that he says not one word in this 38 minutes, which is not banal, and hopelessly unfunny, mm. shameful even. Yeah. You can see how he got the gig. Oh, right? yeah. Because if nothing else, he's very slick. Mm, very. And he does this terrible thing uh, very efficiently, like a calm vivisectionist. Mm. He's, uh, I mean, like we last time the three of us were here, we watched Andy Peebles yes. turn in the least convincing debut since the Shockmaster. <laughs> well done, Taylor. Well, this is my my entire knowledge of American wrestling right there. I'm not generally in favour of it because I think it cleared a path for Donald Trump. But yeah. <laughs> do explain but the, the Shockmaster. It was oh, it, it was Tugboat off the WWF who went from WWF to WCW. Have you seen this, David? I haven't, no. I'm afraid, and I do know little Oh, and he got introduced but... by Sting and Ric Flair yes. and the British Bulldog. Right, yeah. And uh, he was supposed to burst through a wall. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, Sorry, I'm just picturing it. <laughs> and and they, they made the explosive charge too high, and he, he basically just tripped up and fell through the wall. And his helmet, it was, it was a Stormtrooper <laughs> helmet with kitchen foil over it, falls off. And he's just rolling oh, about, and um, the the voice of Arn Anderson is heard over the tannoy, which is supposed to be his voice. <laughs> and you can hear Davy Boy going, "Fucking hell, he fell on his ass." <laughs> oh, well done, yeah. Taylor. You're one of us, Very after good. all. Very well, I, lo- I love that. Clip. So I recognise yeah, everybody. But- else. I recognise the rest of those names, but not no the, the shopmaster. But I'll certainly yeah. Uh, there's a reason why he's not so well remembered. Yeah. 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 But yeah, the. The, the the oily smoothness. Yes. A consummate professional, isn't yeah. it? Supreme supreme self-confidence, you know, which um, has allowed him to exude all manner of bollocks throughout his entire career. Yeah. You know, a trace of self-doubt or self-consciousness. Yeah, it's that self-confidence you can only have when you have a total lack of content. Yeah. Because yeah. Um, he clearly doesn't give a fuck about no, pop music. No, no. 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 Yeah, yeah. But he's capable of doing the job without you know, plunging the power drill through his own sternum, uh, which is, you know, it's easy to mock, but harder than it looks. 
But you're right about the the black. I mean, I've gone on. I've talked before about the kind of the sort of the blackness of the rafters in the episode of Top of the Pops, mm. um, and you know now it's signifying the sort of the outer darkness of the unlit seventies, blah blah blah. But it's really pronounced in this one. It's really emphasised to sort of suggest that blackness is yes, we are in a temporary void in popular culture at the moment. Yes, and it's if the blackness is really really emphasised, they just want to sort of inadvertently make that statement. Um, What's he saying? The link that was it. Stop whatever you're doing, especially yes. if you're doing that. Yeah. I mean, why would anybody be wanking? He means wanking. I know exactly. Does, why yeah. would anybody be wanking to a Noel Edmonds link? Well, it's... well, why would anybody be wanking to Manfred Mann's Earth Band? <laughs> That's exactly. That you know. Whatever, oh, yeah. You, know, uh, you, depends, you want to you know, stop what... doing that? You get blinded by the Absolutely. light. Yes. <laughs> But yes, there is an inky void, but oh, here comes disco to save the day. Do we talk about the song or do we talk about the way it is put over to the youth? Because this is the first appearance of the night for Ruby Flipper. Yeah. 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 Formed in London in March of 1976, Ruby Flipper were drafted in to replace Pan's people when Ruth Pearson, the last original member of the troupe, turned 30. Rather than being spirited away in a Logan's Run style and fashion, Pearson was signed up as co-manager of the new troupe and it was decided that they would move away from an all-women group wearing the same costumes and go a bit unisex. After keeping on Cherry Gillespie and Sue Mahennick from The People of Pan, they put an advert in the stage in February which read, Dancers, ladies and gents, for long-running TV series choreographer Flick Colbert. What a mystery. Mm. Mm. What what show could that be? Ooh, the Money Programme? <laughs> <laughs> After three stages of auditions, the final five auditions were picked. Patty Hammond and Lulu Cartwright bolstered the female side and they were supplemented by Gavin Trace, Philip Steggles, a former member of Lulu's New Generation, and, most controversially, Floyd Pierce, a member of... Of the black race. After two months of intensive training, they were given the name Ruby Flipper, a mashup of the names Flick Colby and Ruth Pearson. I'll leave you to work it out for yourself. And they made their debut on May the 6th of this year, dancing to the stylistics version of Can't Help Falling in Love, and were immediately bombarded with criticism from all sides. It's a big mistake, said Sue Ward, a member of the last generation of Pan's people. Men rush home to watch sexy ladies. They do not want to see other men. Even the media had a go. At first, I thought it was a mistake, an omission, or even that they were on holiday. But never in a month of dancing pumps did I believe that BBC One would replace Pan's people, the stars of Top of the Pops, thundered the Aberdeen Evening Express. Granted, some of the girls appear in the new Ruby Flipper dance group, but by comparison, they are second rate. A flash in the pan, even. Replacing pan's people is unforgivable folly. Yeah. (laughs) That is a table thumb for him. Yes. By this point, Trace, the one who looked a bit like Paul Nicholas, had already left being unable to put up with the gruelling schedule. And as we've already mentioned, we're a week away from them finding out that their days are numbered, but my God, they're going to dance, dance, dance their way into the tomb. Quite right. Ruby Flipper are this kind of one of the great unrealised futures of popular culture. But um, 
You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, because they're genuinely trying to do something progressive. But is it really anything new, though, David? Because, you know, the, the, well, the young generation, they were unisex. And, you know, we're, mm. we're a couple of years away from the, the wonderment of the Brian Rogers connection on 321. Yeah, you would think that. And, you know, fair enough, young boys don't want to see men dancing. But, but surely young girls don't mind so much. You would have thought so. But, I mean, I think that in what happened here, clearly the shock, and you almost like imagine it when Floyd versus appears, although obviously it's not his first appearance, but the shock is probably in bad sitcom terms. It's like some show in which Leslie Phillips is um, proposed having a menage a trois and thinks, hey, oh, ding dong, only yeah. to realise that the third party is none other than Derek Griffiths. And I think that's yes. the kind of, um, you know, this is the sort of shock the had on people like Bill Cotton, for instance, who I think was one of the great drivers to make sure that, you know, this was yes. taken off the air forthwith. And the, the whole tenor of the complaint is that they don't really want men involved in this kind of particular um men with penises let us not forget yeah it's definitely a troop too far yeah the thing is it's not completely untrue that men dancing is not something many people want to look at it's like tits right that everyone likes tits mm. the reason why you see tits everywhere it's not just objectification of women, blah, 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 trying to sell to men because it's perceived that men have got the money. It's also because everybody likes them, right? Straight yeah. men like them. Gay men like them. Yeah. They think they're hilarious. Mm. Lesbians obviously like them. And straight women like them too. They're fascinated by the women's tits. Everyone loves them yeah. in a way that is not true of bollocks. Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Nobody could, wants they, to look, look at bollocks. They could have had tits and co, couldn't they? <laughs> right. But it's... It's just a general thing, and it's partly because men dancing, I mean, doing anything other than the running man, has been <laughs> coded as gay since yeah. about 1970, yeah. right? Which means that really it's only gay men, and even then only some gay men yeah. can watch tight, bunned dancing boys in the same way that dads would leer at Legs and Co., right? Mm. Everyone else just finds it funny, including mm. straight women. Yeah. So it just sort of doesn't work. Um, on top of which, there seems to be something universal about deriving pleasure from, from feminine grace and beauty, whereas everybody has a fundamental need to puncture the egos of men who are seen as preening and peacocking. Yeah. So as soon as you put a bunch of men out there, everyone wants them to fall on their ass. Yeah. Right? It's like you see a man dancing, and unless he's camping it up or making a joke of it, you just assume he must be a cock. Yeah. You know, which is why male dancers generally do have to camp it up, mm. because otherwise... It's not just that nobody wants to look at them. It's people find it actively objectionable to see. It's interesting about, you know, the whole gay thing, codified as gay. I think gay consciousness generally was fairly low in, in like, in, in, in the mid-70s, generally. It certainly was as far as I was concerned. I mean, really, you had to be pretty unsubtle. You had to be kind of coming up in a kind of big pink floppy hat and saying, hello, tonky-tonk, how are you, or something like that. I mean, it was really, <laughs> you had to be pretty blatant about it. We were only 80% certain about Larry Grayson, and we were 0% certain about the village people who completely went under the radar, everybody's yeah. radar. Um, and yet, and yeah. yet, in my school playground, um, just having having the wrong kind of shoes meant that you enjoyed anal sex with other men. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. Having, the- like, having a haircut that was a week out of date. 
Yeah, uh, you're a bit younger than us, definitely. Though, Taylor. Yeah. Oh no, we're yeah. Well, oh, puffs. Someone oh, there were puffs, obviously, but we didn't necessarily. That was like Walter and Dennis the Menace and things like that. There was a sort of softies and puffs. I mean, you know. But then there was, there was a bit of kind of confusion about actual gayness. Yes, with like you say, all the implications of anal sex and what have you. Mm. But also, it's interesting about talking about blokes dancing. Ironically, at this time and to this particular tune, you've got John Travolta wowing it up. You know, in Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, later. Yeah. Although I remember like reading an article at the time. Somebody, you know, there's some sort of disco crowd that they kind of went and interviewed about, and they said anyone, any bloke who went out onto the floor and tries to cut stuff like that, they'd be absolutely barracked. So, um, yeah, we've got to point out that this is not the full uh, Ruby Flipper experience. Mm. There's only four out of the remaining six. Mm. Uh, Lulu, Sue, and Pate are on podiums at the back in teeny tiny waistcoats, and uh, and. Uh, oh, I was going to say hot pants, but by this point in the 70s, they're just pants, aren't they? It's just knickers. Yeah. yeah with little yeah. coloured dots sewn into them. Yeah. And they've got Floyd uh, in sort of a, a silky white waistcoat and matching trousers. And uh, he's in the middle, but he's absolutely miles away from him, isn't he? Mm. You could not have put him any further away in that studio if you'd have tried without, you know, being in a different studio. Being in the fucking uh, Thames Television studio. I mean, they might as well have put an electrified fence around him. Exaggeratedly segregated, yeah, definitely. Yes. The legend, of course, the great urban legend about this is that part of what got Ruby Flipper off the air is that Bill Cotton Mm. said nobody wants to look at black men dancing with white women. Mm. Now, I don't know if that's true, right? I I have no idea. I don't want to say without evidence that, you know, you went into Bill Cotton's office and it was like watching Michael Richards at the Laugh Factory. Maybe it was. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. But if the worry was a sort of KKK-style fear of rampaging black sexuality and lock up your daughters... He had perhaps missed something when looking at Floyd out of Ruby Flipper. Yeah. It strikes me would have very little interest in anybody's daughter, you Mm. know, carnally speaking. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, there is some very extreme segregation going on here. There is. You get the impression they had a handler in green overalls standing (laughs) just off set with a tranquilizer gun aimed at Floyd all the way through just to... (laughs) Just to comply with 1970s BBC dance regulations. I mean, the thing that, that puts me off that train of thought with Bill Cotton is that, you know, he commissioned the Black and White Minstrels show. <laughs> so it's all right It's all right for white women to sit on the knee of white men pretending to be black men. Hmm. You know, we were, yeah. we, were, we, were, we were all for that, weren't we? Yeah, oh, we, yeah, we all no. were. Maybe they should just got a, a, a minstrel in, hmm. Ruby Flipper. That would have sorted everything <laughs> out, wouldn't it? Yeah. But the thing about Floyd is he looks such a nice young lad. He does, yeah. He's very in the mould of Brinsley Ford in Here Come the Double Deckers and uh, Benny Green in Grain Gel. Yeah. It's like, what are you racist to him for? He's all right. Mm. As for the way that the, the three women in Ruby Flipper look, it's, they've already got, Taylor, that um, lean and hungry look that Legs and Co would have, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, very aerobicised. But, yeah, which increases the sense of them looking a bit naked and stranded yes. out there on their yeah. podia. They look like they've forgotten their kit and they've just had to do it in their knickers. Yeah, vest and pants. <laughs> yeah, and a sort of a little waistcoat. And, and the choreographer's written a little Marilyn Monroe-style cleavage wobble into the dance, yeah. which is ridiculous because 
they're yeah. all completely flat-chested because they're you know dancers. live professional dancers. Mm. So it all, it's all a bit wrong, and they're all on separate podiums. And the audience aren't allowed to dance at all. No, the audience are sitting, yeah, not even at their feet, at the foot of the podium. Yeah, like all on, sitting cross-legged on the floor, swaying from side to side, like in a school assembly, like they're you know rowing and rowing the imaginary boat. Um, <laughs> it's a it's really strange scene. But the song, David, mm. you know, I'm a, I'm a bit younger than you. To me, this song is what the Bee Gees were all about. You know, yeah. having no idea that they actually had a career years before. Mm. What was it like for you? Did you know of them? Yeah, I mean, in I, the original incarnation? I really, really liked Jive Talking when it came out. I thought it was fantastic, and I always thought yeah. it was fantastic. Um, but, uh, I mean, the older stuff. And the older stuff, yes, I was faintly conscious, probably through my grandma, who was a bit of a pot picker, that um, they had a little bit of a past, and I would probably be dimly aware of that. You know, I, I was aware that they were a kind of pre-existing group um i think at the time the way that i figured was that they um were in a sense they were sort of fronting for disco that they weren't particularly responsible for the disco element they were just sort of you know the people up front and somebody else was taking care of the disco i mean certainly the fact that they went to arif mardan martin is, is really interesting because um mm. he did a similar brilliant job for um cuban um, scritty politi cuban psyche 85 right in 85 so um uh, i suppose that was my kind did, yeah. of impression that, that somebody else was in the background was dealing with the disco and that they were just sort of providing the voice and the kind of the pop present up front um, yeah. I mean, you know, because to to me this is like I don't know status quo suddenly coming back in 1988 in cycling mm. shorts, yeah, and yeah. doing loads of really fucking good acid house records. Definitely, yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. I absolutely loved it. Now, I mean, it's you know, I think I probably went through a slightly austere phase when I started listening to Bob Dylan. I had to sort of try and dismiss this kind of thing as like, like kind of mindless dross for the masses or whatever. But I never could, you know. And unfortunately, I got over that within about six months. No. Absolutely, yeah. You can't with this song. It's fucking brilliant. What a one-two punch this has been so far. It's superb. And, I mean, I think, you know, obviously the people talk about, like, appropriation or whatever. Um, and there's two things. I mean, one is you look at this chart overall and there's so much music by people of colour. I mean, you know, it, it's yeah. you know, really strong representation there, which makes it slightly more ironic, I suppose, the reaction to Floyd, you know, because um, there's such kind of great sort of acceptance of, like, great black soul music, blah, blah. This is kicking open the door to disco. Which is gonna, you know, absolutely drench the charts over the next couple of years. I mean, how important was it for disco that its two prime exponents at this time are white people? You know, Bee Gees, KC, and the Sunshine Band. That's interesting, isn't it? I think that the Bee Gees were genuinely great songwriters and genuinely mm. produced something that only they could. Um, yeah, and I think yeah, I felt that at the time. I feel that now, um, and I think yeah. you know. It's always sometimes I think appropriation can sometimes be a really really positive thing, um, and I think yeah. this is an example of that. You know, you bring your own sensibility to something rather than just being you know of that particular scene. You know, well, it's just what white people have always done with black music. Mm. It was what yes. talented white people have always done right. with black music, right? Untalented white people copy it and make it shit. Talented white people take a rhythmic black style and add white melody to it, right? Like add European style mm. melody to it. Um, and it never fails. If you can do it, you know, then it it it, it works brilliantly. Um, yeah, it's fashionable to like the '60s early BG stuff, which I mm. mostly don't. Right, apart from a few no. of them, like I like New York Mining Disaster, 1941. Not not many bad songs about mining disasters, but most of the rest is a bit smug. Timothy, but yeah, Timothy's is is better yet, but. 
Now, most yeah. of the rest of that stuff is a bit smug and a bit deliberate for me. I mean, it's it's all competent and it's pretty, but it's a little bit simpering and toothsome for my tastes. Yeah. But the funny thing about the 70s Bee Gees, I think since the self-appointed connoisseurs got over their collective fear of disco, um, they've been consistently neither fashionable nor unfashionable, which is probably mm. right. Because on the one hand, these are great records, um, both as studio creations and as mood enhancers. Uh, but on the other hand, they're sort of sealed into a pocket of time by the Bee Gees themselves, everything about them, right? Yeah. The visual trappings <clears throat> and the audible attitude, right? Which is uh, it's linked to so many other things, which no longer makes sense, right? It's not possible to fully connect with the Bee Gees in this century, right? Any more than it's possible to fully connect with Jane Austen, right? Because the basic premise on which they rest is now incomprehensible. That version of the yeah. sensitive macho man just doesn't play anymore, right? And the, no. the, the, the grimly sincere sort of heroic edge to the ballads, it just it doesn't land right now. So today, mm. you can only enjoy these records as sounds, which is a level at which they're yeah. fantastic, you know, or as un, unserious dance records. Yeah, I think you're right that they are kind of sealed in that era. For another thing, I mean, they are still great records and, and they do survive, but they were almost immediately assailed by parody, you know, from everything from that airplane uh, film, you know, stuff like that. They were all, you know, there's parodied all over the shop. And um, I think that kind of made it difficult for them to sort of kick on from these particular records and do, you know, and develop in that way. I think they just had to sort of lay off and then reinvent themselves in some other way later on. Yeah, but that thing, just the pure, delightful, sonic and rhythmic texture of it is mm. all that was ever good about these records. So it doesn't matter. They yeah. haven't lost anything, you know. Yeah. And the only thing I don't like about this record is that I associate it with wedding receptions and family 40th yeah. birthday get-togethers when, you know, when it would yeah. basically prove the point that most people shouldn't be dancing. At least not <laughs> not publicly. Also, I don't like this air of non-dancer shaming in this song. It's a bit repellent, mm. isn't it? Who says I should be dancing, right? What's it to you? Uh. Why, why do you care? Perhaps I have other less overtly embarrassing ways of showing off and relieving tension. Yeah. <laughs> I've stripped to it on many occasions. I've not mentioned this yet, have I? It's been oh. alluded to a bit, but in the in about from about 1998 to 2001, I had a part time job as a male stripper with a, a troupe called the Fraud Monte. I'll get into that a little bit more when we do cover a, um, a top of the pops from that era, or, or when man to man with man parish of course, yeah. And you know yeah. that's imminent. You know that's imminent. Man to man meets Al Needham. <laughs> but um, for, for this song, we used to wear different coloured disco jumpsuits, which were held together by two lengths of wire, which ran all the way from our shoulders down to the bottom of the trousers. And near the end of the song, we sort of teasingly pull the wire out and then the entire costume would fall to the ground, leaving me in nothing but a red sequin G-string. <laughs> Let's just pause and think about that for a moment. <laughs> or try and expunge it from our minds. So sorry to have missed it. <laughs> this is what I was saying earlier, the the need for humour in this performance, what, what, right? It's, I won't tell you, the, the need for eroticism, Taylor, that's the word you're looking for there. <laughs> in, 
But didn't you find that there was a, a, a something of a difference between the what I presume would be the hysterical whooping of a female audience? Oh yes, and the deep dark silence at a strip show populated by men watching a young woman. Yeah, but that was that, that's the way it was, man. Yeah, it's yeah. healthy. Yeah, it was. Yeah. We'll talk about that another time. <laughs> so the following week, you should be dancing. Dropped seven places to number thirteen, but jumped back up the week later to number five, its highest position. What the fuck happened there? Wow, the flipper factor. Yes, the follow-up, Love So Right, would only get to number one for two weeks in November of this year. But they began their period of dominance when How Deep Is Your Love got to number three for five weeks in late 1977, early 78. should be dancing and if you weren't dancing I want a note on my desk in the morning from your mother explaining exactly why. The Bee Gees this week's number six and Ruby Flipper and we'll be having a little bit of Flip and a little bit of Ruby a little bit later on but in the meantime I mean it's fairly obvious isn't it for months and months he said that his resistance was low so well after a while he had to succumb and start doing it. Robin Sars did. Let's fall in love Why shouldn't we fall in love our hearts are made of it, let's take a chance Why be afraid of it? Edmund, in front of a backdrop of hanging silvery discs Like if your dad had hung a load of CDs up in the back garden To stop the birds getting at his plums Introduces the next act, Robin Sarstedt and Let's Fall in Love Born in Rajasthan, India in 1944, Clive Sarstedt was the youngest brother of Richard, who had five top ten hits and a number one with Well I Ask You in the early 60s, and Peter, who went to number one for four weeks in 1969 with Where Do You Go To My Lovelet. After playing in bands in Hamburg, he was signed up by Joe Meek in 1963 releasing a handful of singles under the name Wes Sands and then when nothing came of that he spent time in various British and Swedish bands before signing a solo deal with CBS in 1968 under the name Clive Sands. In 1970 he signed to RCA under his original name and teamed up with his brothers for the LP Worlds Apart Together in 1972. But it wasn't until he signed to Decker under the name Robin Sarstedt that he finally made the charts when his cover of Hoagie Carmichael's My Resistance Is Low got to number three in June of this year. This is a follow-up, a cover of the 1933 Eddie Dushin song, and it's not in the charts yet. I must admit I have got a bit of a soft spot for My Resistance Is Low. Yeah, oh, me too. I really liked it at the time. Uh, mm. I have to say, I was, I was very, you know, I was, as I say, you know, I didn't really have this kind of sort of, in some ways, it was quite an uninhibited sort of appreciation I had of uh, music. I really didn't mind, you know, what it was, what its provenance was, and how it sort of fit into the kind of critical scheme of things. And um, yeah, I, I, I really, I really did like it. This, not so much. Mm. I mean, what's odd about this, first off, is he was born in India. His real name's Clive. Yeah. But he never thinks to do the obvious. Pathetic. It's clearly a sort of piece of, you know, sort of 
retro or whatever. And it's like, does not feel any obligation to dress in appropriate, some sort of appropriate costume or no, not it's at all. almost like you know, it's almost like he, he did, but it got ruined at the dry cleans at the last minute. He turns up in just absolutely Mister Seventy Six, isn't he, with his man necklace yes. and these horrible blue flared strides that you know. Yeah. I don't think that the machinery is. It's capable of being built. It could excavate and recycle it, even as some sort of kitsch, you know. Well, that that Marge yeah. Simpson necklace that he's wearing. Yes. Yes. yes, yes, that's what I've got in my notes. It must be a stab at androgyny, but it's slightly mm. out of time because by 1976, Macho is back, right? Yes. But he can't be expected to know that with his no. powder blue slacks, you know, made out of yeah. some unbreathing test tube fibre. Keeping all that sarstet sweat on the inside and a thin white plastic belt, you know. It's like he looks like he's just got off a cruise ship where he's been doing, you know, fly me to the moon for two years around the Cape of Good Hope, one eye open for tipsy widows. He does look like the Lothario of the tea (laughs) dance, doesn't he? Yeah, he's got this weird makeup on as well. What he looks like is if Ray Langton from Coronation Street (laughs) decided to try his hand at drag. (laughs) <laughs> but then sort of lost interest round about the collarbone. Yeah, it's not for me. He clearly looks like he's going to try and sweep away a rich widow mm. and uh, get her into his MG Spitfire and uh, get his hands on her premium bond <laughs> that her husband left behind. <laughs> See, mm. I was always fearful that one day I'd end up on chart music having to talk about Peter Sarstet because mm. Where Do You Go To My Lovely is in my five most hated records of all time and i just can't bear to hear it but it's quite a surprise to suddenly find oneself staring down the barrel of robin sarstet which i didn't really (laughs) expect it's like having to talk about ian hitler or or (laughs) chris mugabe it's just it's impossible to be fair to him you know um so i don't really want to like this record or dislike it which is how it turned mm. out. It's like a cyclone of not giving a shit. By the end of it, I was yeah. poking myself in the palm with a drawing pin just to stay awake, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it it does puzzle me, though. I mean, just again, just going to, you know, a cummerbund or maybe a, a topper or something like that, you know, to do absolutely yeah. nothing and to dress not even in, you know, it's so emphatically in some sort of, like, bad style at 1976ism, it's... Very, you know, and I'm sure that's not the way to win win over the kind of the wealthy grannies either. No, um, no, he should have been in some kind of like Aurea, yeah, commander's outfit. Because I mean, this is a song from the 30s. As um, it's weird. There's also around this time, it's almost like this first flickering of a sort of postmodernism or something like that. I mean, you've also got is it Manhattan Transfer mm. around this chanson de yes. and this kind of a former gracious age of Art Deco and elegance or whatever. Um, yeah, there's one or two other things in the show even that kind of like hint at that as well. But um, um, I mean. It's uh, it was a time actually when, despite Sarsted's best efforts, trousers were beginning to kind of taper a little bit. You know, about about nineteen seventy six, yeah. and it's almost like people were looking back, casting back for sort of stylistic ideas to the sort of the pre flare sort of generation. Or whatever. Mm, I think this is the last period of time when you could wear flares mm. on television and not immediately get laughed at. Mm. So the last, it's the last swish of the. Uh, of the trouser leg, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. But it's stuff like this, stuff on this level, it's just casting around for something, you know. It's just, it's capitalising on, you know, there was that vogue for like 20s and 30s styles like Bieber and all that, you know. Yes. It's as if the culture was just a bit stuck and 
just looking backwards, mm. which is what culture always does in a, you know, in a bit of downtime, you know. So for a couple of years, this kind of slightly smarmy, semi-ironic tea room crooning was a, not a big deal, but it was an option. You know, you could do it. Yeah. Like Peter Skellen was never off BBC Two, you know what I mean? We're one year removed from Whispering Grass by Donna Snow. There you go. Let's not forget. And a bit of it was nostalgia for pensioners. Although, of course, at the time, this stuff was only about as old as this programme is to us, you know. Mm. But it was, yeah, I mean, it's it's just a thing. If you've got, you're just casting around for a thing to be or a thing to do. And he's just landed on this, mm. you know. I don't think it really means anything to him. It's just, mm. you just look at it just think... All right, get that man a sassafras. <laughs> In fact, get him a hundred so he dies, slumped over a table at Lion's Corner House. Pennies from Heaven was around, yes, time, wasn't it? That was another big one as well. None Oz would have liked this. Mm. He's a nice young man. Yeah, he's, he's got my necklace. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Now that belt, though, the belt is the real crime. Yes, the, the white plastic belt. It's horrendous. Mm. He needs to go to. You know how in East London there's loads of leather goods shops, right? Yeah. And most of them specialise either in belts or shoes or, or bags. Just that, a whole shop full of that thing. Mm. Uh, best one I ever saw was about 20 years ago out near the old West Ham football ground. There was a belt shop, and I saw this with my own eyes. A belt shop with a big, cheaply painted shop front with the James Bond logo on it. And the name of the shop, 007 Licensed to sell belts. <laughs> and that's yeah, where that's Clive, mm. so-called Robin's arse, actually gone. Instead of just using mm. the placky one that came with his foster brother's slacks. Yeah. You can't do that look-at-me pearl necklace and then no. accessorise with that. You can't do it. No. People won't take you seriously. You can't. He wants to go somewhere like Mr. Bojangles in <laughs> Glasgow. Yeah, you want something that looks like it should go around a horse's neck. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, belts were... Big bastard things at this time. Yeah. You wouldn't want somebody to take off their belt at that point, yeah. If you were Robin Sarstedt's son, you'd just do what the fuck you liked, wouldn't you? <laughs> it would be like being hit on the arse with a straw. <laughs> yeah. I bet Uncle Peter's got a proper one, though. You can bet on it. <laughs> it has to be said that one positive of this performance is the input of the Top of the Pops Orchestra with the Ladybirds, because, you know, this is right in their wheelhouse, isn't it? As as British people pretending to be Americans would say. Mm. Yeah. It really is. And it, it has to be said that just like when they did My Resistance is Low, the Top of the Pops version is far superior than the single. Always the mark of a great record. One really strange thing at the end of this song is you can actually hear the audience clapping right at the end for about three or four seconds, and then it's completely submerged by the canned applause that Top of the Pops always <laughs> yeah, whack on. The one... Which is very the odd. one tape of cheering and That clapping. is a very, yeah. very good spot. Only a Top of the Popsologist mm. of uh, distinction and refinement would have spotted that. Thank you. So, the following week, and for every week after that, Let's Fall in Love failed to chart, although it became a hit in the Benelux countries and he was never heard from again. Why should we fall in love? Now is the time for it while we are young. Let's fall in love. 
Bold, bold, bold. Let's fall in love. That's Robin Sarsted on his way to another Top 30 smash, I've no doubt at all. Now, we've got some people who've come a very, very long way indeed. They've come all the way from Germany, where they're an absolute wow, a sensation, or however they say it in that particular language. They are Can, and they want some more. I wonder if Can will get into the top ten. <laughs> After being completely wrong about Robin Sarstedt's chart possibilities, Edmonds, still alone, wants to introduce us to a band who were deemed a wow and sensational in their fatherland, not bothering to work out the translation. And uh, according to Google Translate, their I'm being drunkened und reiserisch combo can and I want more. Formed in Cologne in 1968, Can were an experimental rock band who later became known as the pioneers of kraut rock, which is light rock but with more flute solos. <laughs> By 1974, they had recorded six LPs, but none had made the slightest indentation on the UK charts. However, after signing to Virgin Records in 1975 and making an appearance on the old Grey Whistle Test in the same year, they started to get known about. And this, the lead-off single from their 8th LP, Flow Motion, has seen the band having a bit of a go at that disco thing everyone's been going on about. And after creeping into the top 40 and jumping from number 39 to number 30 this week, here they are in the top of the pop studio. Whoa! It's a bit of a treat, isn't it, David? It is indeed, yes. Um, yeah, rock music is set with more flute solos. I think that's the TL semicolon DR version of my book, I would have to say, definitely. Excellent. Okay. I would say fewer <laughs> chord changes and yes. more flute solos. Yes, there is the yeah. S, I suppose, if we're going to really kind of fill it out. But yeah, definitely. Um, a bit upset with Edmund's introduction. Very, there, very upset. For, uh, I mean, obvious reason. But, you know, I assume that the German for wow would be wow, but with an umlaut. Yeah, vu, yeah. Verve. I think he just assumed that they were kind of massive in Germany. But, I mean, they did have, you know, they did have mm. like one hit with um, Spoon, which is based on the TV theme that they did. But, you know, this is the whole thing about the whole crowd rock movement in general. Even Kraftwerk is just how little regard there was and remains for them, you know, in West Germany at the time, in West in, in Germany today. It's quite there should be statues of Cannes in Cologne. But you know, I interviewed Jack Lee mm. like, towards the end of his life and he was just puttering around the city, completely unrecognised, even in the kind of studio that where he was working. Um, you know, the stu- you know, the, the, the workplace there. It's you know, that that's that's the kind of slight irony. Yeah, the you know, the top tin joke. I mean I reckon mm. it's probably his, his best joke of the of the evening, although that's, you know, obviously a very extremely low bar. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's best ballet company in Mansfield, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. And you've got to say, you know, on reflection, thank fuck it's Edmonds doing that link and not DLT or Kenny Everett. Yes, yes. Steve Priest Bismarck helmet would have been brought out again, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, no doubt, no doubt, yes. Yes, it's actually relatively rained in. There is that small mercy. Um, the first thing, the odd thing about this recording is that um, they're down to a kind of a four-piece at this point. You know, um, Dama Suzuki yeah. is like, you know, left a while back. And they're just, and in fact, on this, they kind of share vocal duties. But of the four guys on stage... Uh, Michal Caroli, the guitarist, he was actually on Safari at the time when they were asked to kind of appear on Top of the Pops. No! 
So and there was no way of calling him back yes. after the night. So basically, <laughs> just just for that night. So what they do instead is they just get these kind of geezers, sort of roadies, or somebody in their entourage, and he plays guitar instead. And you know they get away with it because who knows or really cares? You know, in the UK about what you know Michael Caroli looks like. I mean, if it had been Dave Hill, I mean, you know, that would have been a different story. So he's essentially the Ken in Can, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't the story that they deliberately picked someone who looked as little like him as possible? Just so that none of their fans well, yeah. would think that, you know, they were trying to pull a fast one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they weren't trying to get a kind of Karoli lookalike. Yeah, but, you know, they probably had fairly limited choice in any case. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would have watched this episode at the time. And I don't think this, mm. oddly enough, would have made that much of an impression on me. I mean, probably no. for some of the reasons that make Can very great, you know, the kind of decentativeness, in the fact there's no kind of focal point. Um, yeah. You know, there's no sort of start there. I mean, they... they um, I mean, that is what makes them one of the, for me, one of the top five most important rock groups ever. But at the time, I, also, you know, there was a lot of kind of Euro stuff, one hit wonder sort of, you know, uh, various things, all sorts of things drifting through the charts, you know, things like Focus or whatever. And and I would have probably filed it under that. Oh, yeah, German group attempted to have a go at pop. Yeah, yeah, another one. Um, yeah. They're dressed. If you've seen Wings of Design, you know, Bruno Gantz's Angel, and eventually falls to earth, yeah. he trades in his kind of angel suit of armour. Uh, at a crappy second-hand clothes shop, <laughs> and gets all these really dodgy, mismatching sort of, you know, duds, and they, they look like that. They look like that. They're dressed awfully. I mean, Jackie Leibertsite in his kind of Hawaiian shirt, Ermin Schmidt in that kind of mm. God knows what sort of top or whatever. Um, and you know, they just they. I think you know they, they look. It was almost like well, you know, nondescript really. Um, they make no impression yeah. whatsoever. But this is just such an immense single. It's almost. I mean, it, yeah. You say like you say they're having a kind of a go at disco, but it's got this kind of yeah. idiosyncratic sort of robotic quality. A lot of which actually derives from yeah. the sheer precision of Jackie Liebertsite's drumming, which you know is just the thing that kind of underpins them, you know, throughout their time. I mean, they're kind of winding down a bit. At this point, I can. I mean, they've been around for eight or nine years, and Jackie Liebertsite had this philosophy. He said that a group should only last about the same age as a dog, you know. And so at this point, you know, and they've only got two or three more years. So this is a sort of, you know, this is a sort of slight return in a sense, their sort of former glories. Um, but mm. um, it's, um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's foundational. Um, and sadly, as a kid at the time, you know, I would have probably been as underwhelmed by it as um, Edmunds is. Yeah, I suspect a lot mm. of viewers at the time will have taken Can as a kind of Teutonic Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because they're yeah. clearly right. older men in non-age appropriate clothes playing a sort of shiny, mm. technically adept variation on groovy rock and roll, but clearly coming from somewhere else, mm. you know. And it might it might have been a bit much to ask for a, a 70s uh, primetime TV audience to consciously spot the difference between the sort of the slightly mm. forced nature of Blinded by the Light, you know, good record though it is, yeah. and the way that I Want More seems to just slip and slither directly out of Cannes' collection. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Active imagination, just straight into your ears, you know. Mm. Although, I mean, you'd hope mm. that at least some of them were able to feel it when that, that great gliding keyboard hook starts up and the song yes. picks up that sort of weird, unearthly momentum, you know. Uh but I don't know. Yeah, it, it's 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 weird. I mean, yes, it probably to sort of you know um, Anglo-American ears, it just sounds sort of coming coming out of the blue. It just sounds slightly off kilter, and perhaps it might be mistaken for a kind of slightly cack-handed attempt at disco, you know, but being slightly offbeat or whatever. Mm. And I'm sure that I would have found uh, Manfred Mann and the keyboards far more be- bedazzling than Ermin Schmidt, who just seems to kind of like put in the occasional kind of karate chop. <laughs> but the fact is, that if he'd wanted to, Ermin Schmidt would have outprogged the. Fun if he'd felt like it out of Manfred Mann he, was, he would have been a far superior player yeah. but he saw no point in all that kind of ostentatious kind of you know fly the bumblebee excursions up and down the keyboard I mean to him that was just a kind of mm. nonsense he he you know, he, he saw things in a kind of conceptual way. You know, he was an absolutely accomplished keyboardist, but saw no reason to kind of flaunt that. And that's one of the reasons when I think that was the sort of underpinning philosophy of a lot of the Krautwork groups. And I think that is why a lot of post-punk people who'd suffered throughout the sort of early 70s, if you're Emerson, Lake and Palmer's and what have you, and Rick Waitman's, they really appreciated the sort of conceptual approach of Krautwork. Yeah. Mm. So when did you get into Can then, David? Not until about a couple of years later, when I became a kind of student mm. and a sort of you know, and I'd started reading the music press, and I became a boy of mm. discernment and what have you. And I would have raided Future Days from the um, Leeds uh, record library and sort of whacked it onto a right. C ninety cassette. You know, I used to do that thing. I used to borrow like you could borrow three albums at a time. So I'd just buy like a pack of um, you know C ninety cassettes and just. Um, and just, you know, Kill music. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was killing music. Yeah, and it was illegal. Um, but um, <laughs> you know, obviously, the, you know, it's obviously very different now with MP3s because the sort of the nature of the quality. I mean, the quality. You know, I eventually I would have bought all of these albums because the you know a sort of dodgy you know C90 recording is fine to be going on with, but eventually you do want the kind of smooth stereophonic experience of vinyl. Yeah, I mean, my mate was well into Can in the early nineties and. Uh, he tried to introduce me to them, but uh, he, he made the big mistake of showing me the uh, cover of Eggy Bamyase, mm-hmm. which has the most early 70s cover ever. Mm. And I just ran away from it. Um, my loss, because then later on I heard Hallelujah, and it was like, oh, fuck, this is, this is good. Yeah. Mm. Well, in the grand scheme of things, this is a pretty lightweight can track. I mean, it's, you know, it's a bit of a giggle, yeah. but... Even so, there's no other record on this program with the same mastery of of space and balance and movement, you know. Not even the uh, carefully sculpted and super-produced number one has quite that same delicacy to it, you know. This just breathes mm. and twinkles differently to everything else on this program. Not and not everything else, yeah. not just in 1976 anywhere ever, you know. If you separate the moving parts, you would never be able to put them back together again so that they worked, right? It's almost miraculous. Yeah. Mm. Um but 
partly partly why this particular track works is it's one of very few examples of a stereotypically European and highly cerebral uh, white band meeting funk halfway, right? The great too seldom told story in so-called black music is how often those musicians would take steps towards the kind of electronic experimentalism that's usually associated with a white European aesthetic. And they'd do that to move the music Mm. forward without losing any of what it already had, you know. And this is a rare example of traffic in the opposite direction, uh, which doesn't end up sounding ersatz or forced or or feeble, Mm. you know. Um, Mm. And you can't ask for anything more on the top of the pops. It's like suddenly uh, proper, smart, sane, talented people have walked into this Woolworths wasteland and, uh, you know, a little bit of genuine invention and, and wit has sparked and set everything alight, you know. I mean, it's unlikely that this changed too many people's lives because it's not that kind of can record and it doesn't really communicate anything. And as a 14-year-old, the sight of these people, like, you know, my A-level English teacher looked like Ermin Schmidt, you know what I mean? It's, but it <laughs> it's not like you wouldn't react the same way you might to the Sex Pistols. But still, this is one of the great out-of-place performances on top of the pops. And one of the things that they're doing that's ingenious is that they're, they're, not just, they're not filling space, they're creating space. They're creating a context in which events can happen, in which flow motion can occur. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, you know like Jackie Leapside is about that. You know, they all play this kind of discrete role and they create a space in which, you know, you know kind of collective energy can happen. Yeah, and also, although, I mean, this isn't quite Cannes' last hurrah, because I mean, they've still got not quite, they've still no. got animal waves to come from the Saw Delight yeah. album, which for me is the last mm. really great thing they ever did. But it's pretty close. Um, but you can almost diminish in your own head how great this really is when you think of it, you mm. know, in comparison to some of their more large scale stuff. And you know, you can think of it like a genre exercise, like the type they used to sort of, you know, meander into once the initial drive was yeah. wearing off. But Really, it's not like that. It does precisely what it's trying to do, which is to compress all the various aspects of the can sound into a tiny, shiny ball, which can then be rolled down the long hallway into the room where the general public are. You know what I mean? Well, actually, no, I say trying to. I don't think they're even trying to do it. I think for can, the, the sort of, say the sound of early Giorgio Moroder or, you know... American funk was just another color to be used. And once you've created this sound, it's needlessly self-limiting not to let your record be commercial. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like as soon as you start playing I Want More, it's clear that that's what the music wants. That's where this track wants to go. Um, And the really selfish thing would be to force it somewhere else lest someone accuse you of being commercial yeah yeah and and how does uh how do the producers of top of the pops try and put all this over to the uh to the general public satatome they put a big fucking mental red wash on it don't they mm. <laughs> oh yes yes absolutely yeah yeah 
Yeah, I mean that's um, well, you know, that's the sort of the go-to filter, really, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the 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 freaky filter. Mm, yeah, yeah, but when you see it on top of the pops, it's like a little acknowledgement that, uh, that mm. the group is something out of the ordinary. Yeah, because mm. I remember they did it on Zeke Zeke Sputnik <laughs> as yeah. well. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. It always looks like the inside of someone's head who's just about to commit a really nasty act of road rage. Yeah, <laughs> Germans on telly singing. <laughs> Taylor is right actually about later can I mean it certainly is diminished by sort of the standards of their early work but it's definitely worth seeking out and there are definitely kind of strong moments they themselves I think were becoming disaffected with you know the, the project by then part of it was multi-track recording whatever you know they in their early days they just jammed together you know in the same room and then mm. sort of sorted it all out in the editing suite but then they were kind of like coming in and doing like separate bits or whatever and it was getting a little bit more conventional the way they're recording and I think they realised you know that, that, that that wasn't really the way that they should have gone they should have sort of stuck to the guns, really, and and just not, you know, mm. and uh, not necessarily availed of the new technology just because it's there. And they're getting on a bit at this yeah. point. I mean, two of those. It's sad to think that two of the guys there on that stage have died of old age. You know, Jackie mm. Sight and Holger Shukai. and um, Ermin Schmidt would have been old. You know, he's one of the sort of senior figures really now in 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 um, in rock and pop music. Um, he was born in. Well, I think it was about 1937, that sort of time. Um, Jesus. You know, uh, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Know. Holger and, and Ermin were in their 30s when they formed Absolutely. the group, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. Which I always found quite inspirational when yeah. I was about 30. Um, yeah. It's not, it's not too late. Yeah, they're, they're well into their 30s at this point. Yeah. This is the song that brought us to the dance, isn't it, David? This is why you chose this one, isn't it? Oh, yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, just this kind of freakish sort of interface between, you know, Kraut Rock, you know, preceded by Stockhausen, whatever, eventually finding its way into the kind of, um, you know, beneath the strobe lights of um, 1976 Top of the Pops. Yeah. Go on, plug your book. Well, Future Days. Yeah. Yes. It is um, considered by some to be a book about Kraut Rock. Um, and in fact, everybody really, and yeah, it's it's still out there. Um, it's been reproduced in various, uh, reprinted in various different languages: um, mm. Spanish, um, Chinese, Japanese, German? but not German. No, not German. No, they're not. They're not, in, they're not interested. Ugh. You know, uh, you go to Germany, and it's uh, I've said this many. You get you go to West Germany. I was out there. I go to Germany. There's no West Germany anymore. I was out in Berlin, you know, doing some research around the book, and you know, and I was looking around at all the kind of um, the, the, the names are plastered up on the billboards or whatever, you know, and it's like Bon Jovi, it's uh. Red Hot Chili Peppers. The only umlaut I could find anywhere was in Motorhead. Yes. You know, there's just so, there's, and you know, you just talk to people and they're absolutely no idea about this, this heritage they've got. Um, you know, and part of the whole idea that was like behind the creation of Kraut Rock, you know, part that they all kind of separately came to was to create a music that, um, that like, you know, that, that, that wasn't sort of dependent on all the old kind of Anglo-American blues-based uh, cliches or whatever, yeah. and it was West German in origin. Well, you know, and if the idea was to kind of galvanise German pop culture in that way, then in a sense, mission failed because, yes. um, you know, it, it was only really in the rest of the world, you know, always, it was the rest of the world has always been far more interested in kraut rock than, than Germans themselves. So the following week, I Want More nipped up one place to number 29, its highest position. The follow-up, a cover of Silent Night, failed to chart in November of this year and they never troubled the charts again.
actually is the first group on the programme, but we can't have a can opener, not on top of the pubs, and they want a little bit more. Here, will you tell me something? What noise does a sheep make? Bah, bah. Yeah, that's all right. That's, that's all right because we've got 16 bars coming from Stylistics. allowed to stand over the kids gets in another ship metallurgical joke before skillfully working in an ovine reference as he introduces the next act who are the stylistics with 16 bars formed in philadelphia by members of the percussions and the monarchs in 1968 the stylistics signed to avco records in 1970 and were teamed up with the producer tom bell who at the time was making a name for himself as the producer of the Delphonics and as an arranger for the OJs on Philadelphia International Records. They became an immediate fixture on the American charts until their association with Bell ended in 1974, but they became far more popular in the UK, making their first appearance in our charts when Betcha by Golly Wow got to number 13 in July of 1972. That led to them notching up 11 more chart hits on the bounce up to this point, including 7 top 10 hits and 3 weeks at number 1 with I Can't Give You Anything But My Love in August of 1975. This is the follow-up to Can't Help Falling In Love, the cover of the 1961 Elvis tune which got to number 4 in May of 1976. It's up 7 places this week from number 19 to number 12 and we are being treated to a still rare for the time promo video of the lads in their hometown. That Edmonds introduction, Taylor, that was um, a bit of audience participation, yeah, the, which is always nice to see, isn't the it? The participation being stand there while Noel Edmonds hits you over the head with a microphone and... Yeah. Acts as though you're a foolish ant on his shoe. Yeah, it's very, uh, very Travis that was, wasn't it? Uh, just uh. a rare treat to see America on video, isn't it? At this time, absolutely massive buildings and all sorts. Yeah. I think it's part of the appeal of like you know these just sort of slightly kind of mid-range imported TV detective series, you know, Cannon, Starsky and Hutch or whatever. It's simply the chance to see America. Mm. I mean, this is the pre-Freddie Laker era, yeah. and I can absolutely honest, honestly say that I yeah. would have felt that in 1976 that my chances of visiting America were about roughly the same as there were my chances of going to the moon. They really were. It was, um, yeah. you know, it just, you know, there's, there's that real sense of distance, that sense of transatlantic distance. Um, you know, there's that slightly different sort of film yeah. stock, and it's got that kind of sort of wavery, kind of grainy feel, and it really brings home the kind of the, you know, the mm. otherness of urban America. It just seems such a far off place. Yeah, it's not. They didn't pick the nicest day mm. for it. It has to be said. No, absolutely. <laughs> no, yes, I mean, no, they didn't. <laughs> I mean, this is it. Very little thought seems to have gone into the sort of video concept of it all, really. Let's address the elephant in the room here. Why aren't they wearing the same clothes as each other? That's just fucking wrong to me. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? In the uh, in the promotional 
uh, image in the chart rundown, they've got these powder blue suits on with um, lapels so big you could cut a modern day suit out of them uh, with, with a nice bit of white piping. It's like, oh, well done, lads. Nicely turned out. It's obviously dressed down Friday for the stylistics, isn't it? Yeah, but they don't look happy. They <laughs> yeah, look like yeah. they've been forced out of bed and out onto this hill yeah. on a fucking miserable day at about 8 o'clock in the morning. It's like, yeah, I'm, we're sorry yeah. about the weather, lads, but we've booked the cameraman. It's your only free day this week, so yeah. get out there and click those yeah. fingers. It'll keep your hands from going numb, you know. But yeah, they don't yeah. look... Even the little guy who looks like a black chairman Mao, he doesn't <laughs> seem too chuffed to be there. And he looks like he would normally be a bundle of fun, that guy. Yeah. But he's got a sour yeah. face. You want to chuck him under the chin, go, uh, come on, little soldier, give us one more take. You can have a king cone. <laughs> yeah. But although they're not wearing the matching suits, what they are wearing is pretty crazy. Like, crazy enough to, to make up for it. Like, I really, I do miss yeah. the days when you could wear a mustard-coloured outfit from head yes. to toe and still walk proudly, you know, or burnt peach mm. or whatever it is. Tangerine. I mean, it would be nice to at least have the option. Yeah. Like when cars were actual colours, you know. Imagine the stylistics just like sitting at home and just going, oh, fucking hell, I'm wearing this really weird fucking outfit and, and then ringing up each other and finding out they're wearing exactly the same thing at the same time, <laughs> even though they're all over America. <laughs> it's like that episode of Car 54, where are you, where Tuddy mm. and Muldoon mm. are worried that they're copying each other all the time. And so they start eating Chinese food while standing on the head and then find out that the other one's doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> it's strange, though. Like you say, it's such a sort of perfunctory effort really, in terms yeah. of, like you say, the weather's shit. No, never mind. I'll just go ahead and do it anyway. And, you know, is it a budgetary thing? Yeah. I think it's just that people are just completely indifferent in lots of ways in 76. You know, from all sides of pop and rock to the kind of visual side. Yeah, there's a bit of effort into the sort of sleeve. But, but and it's something like this. There's no sense of, mm. you know, the language, of, you know, the of visual language or anything. It's just like, you know, look, it's filmed got the city in the background what more do you want because you know by this time the stylistics are on their arse in america but they're doing very well over here so they're probably just thought oh it's only for england <laughs> it's raining that that's what they're used to yeah yeah, yeah just wave yeah. a tall building in front of those limey twats mm. and they're going oh, yes mouths hang open but having said they were quite right if they thought look it's it's america in the background they'll 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 go wow for that <laughs> absolutely i would yeah, have done that definitely yeah i mean by this time the stylistics have gone from soulful protest of the early 70s to uh chitlins in a basket yeah yeah definitely and uh, that's 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 working for them in the uk well, when they last turned up, we glossed over them, didn't we? Out of embarrassment. Mm. Do you remember that? Like, it was a you know great act with a lousy record. Now they're back with a song about one afternoon in the life of Reginald Bosenkett. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, currently appearing in Run For Your Wife at the Haymarket Theatre. <laughs> but I'm not that bothered about this one either. I have to admit, I no. do like this record. Um, but... You know, it doesn't feel like this has been a particularly great top of the pop so far when you actually watch it. But when we yeah. sit there talking about it, you realise, no, there's loads of great stuff. And I think mm. there's a bit of a sort of Sarstep, Ruby Flipper deflation effect. Yeah. Uh, but this doesn't really leap out as immediately better than anything that's been on no. before, the way a Philly Soul record usually does on yeah. 70s mm. top of the pops. And I think it's partly that the song is not, quite as expressive and intense as it could be it's very circular 
and very basic and it's slightly kitsch in comparison to a lot of that genre as a song right yeah. i mean if you if you change the words to this song so that they were about not dropping litter or living in racial harmony you could have had primary school kids sing. you could have put it in a pusky do you know what i mean you're just singing it yeah. around the piano in assembly um but I mean, a lot of stylistic songs are a little bit like that, like right on the borderline of soupy kitsch, but yeah. redeemed by the sound and the delivery. Um, yeah. But it's a thin line to walk, and you can be swept over it by the slightest thing. And part of the problem here is that the sound is it's optical sound from the 16 millimeter film that's yeah. been telecined. Um, yeah. of the video so it's really blurry and lo-fi yeah so it comes out sounding really mashed up and all the strings yeah. and the harmonies turn into a bit of a mush um yeah. and it flattens out all the subtlety and it sort of keeps you at arm's length emotionally because yeah. what, you know the co- point of connection with this record is the that sort of yearning emotional delivery which is sort mm. of flattened out a bit so you know you just find yourself looking at the togs and the yeah. and the miserable Pennsylvania climate, you know, the yeah. fucking Delaware River or whatever that is, lying in the background like a grey corpse. Yeah, I mean it's distinctly lethargic. Um, it hoves dangerously close to sort of Lena Martel Peters and Lee territory at times, mm. you know. But it's but it's utterly redeemed by the kind of sort of unearthly falsetto grace of the lead vocal. You know, for me, I mean, it's yeah. you know that that's really that's the sort of it's it's huge redeeming redeeming feature it's interesting you know again you know you talk about like the six little camera and, and graininess is there's a distinct sense of graininess that's to do with like being in the past there would have been a sort of another layer of graininess the way that i would have listened to this at the time would would have been on a sort of like dodgy um, non-fm transistor um yes. in the 70s and i almost like kind of you know and, and you know that that's that that's the prison that's the filter where, which listened to all most pop you know at that time you know except for actually top of yeah. pops itself you know um and um so yeah so graininess sort of triggers a sort of proustian <laughs> rush in me i guess yeah um, and the other thing is with with black music you know the finally the tempo starting to pick up a bit isn't it Mm, and yeah. the stylistics are just carrying on yeah, doing what they've done before. Behind. We're going to see yeah. an interesting compare and contrast with uh, uh, another band mm. in their genre uh, in a while. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a pronounced difference, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. Oh, and the, we can't leave this without discussing that brief cut-in of the audience oh, dancing. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Which is like, it's like the before picture in an advert for methamphetamine. It's like you couldn't have picked a more lethargic and dreary-looking group of people. The video cuts out and we go back to the studio with a load of yeah. load of the girls yeah. who have obviously been herded into a corner yeah. Yeah. and uh, told, to, told to dance. It's, it's hard. It, it, it seems complicated. You would have thought in the 70s that, like, if there was any chance of a kind of a ticket, you know, free to or whatever, you know, you can be on the top of the pops, you think, would I? Yeah, you know, on Thursday, yeah. you know, right at the front there. You would have thought that people would have sort of, like, you know, crawled over broken glassware, you know, fought with each other like tigers to get on in that little spot, you know, to be in that little 15, 20 minutes of, like, being on the stage. But they always yeah. look, at this in this era and across this show and across the shows around this era, they just all look like they've been kind of busting under sufferance or they thought they were there for top of the form or something like that. You know, they just look, <laughs> they just do not look like pop people. They look bewildered, no. slightly resentful about being there. They sway in a sort of, like, you know, mandatory sort of manner, you know, like a kind of, like... 
school teachers, you know, kind of at the, you know, the kids kind of like, you know, um, school band or whatever. It's, it's, mm. it's just very strange. And, you know, and it's strange to think now, you know, these will, they already look the age that they are now in a sense. It's almost like they're yes. mentally, mentally voting Brexit already, you know, some of these people. And it's, it's strange <laughs> because, you know, you sometimes hear this from that sort of generation, you know, he says like, we had our fun, you know, you know, we know how to dance. We had you know, to have a good time. It didn't all start mm. with you. We had a fun as well. And you look at things and no, you didn't. No, not the evidence of this. Yeah, it, it, it is full on soul row replacement service once again, isn't it? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, it looks like the picture has gone into black and white, but it's not. It's just that's what no. they look like. It's like people talk about you know why punk had to happen, and it was nothing to do with prog rock or youth unemployment, right? It was this. It was this mm-hmm. pole of pacified, unmotivated nothingness you know dressed in gray and blue gray just Mm. shifting from foot to foot and dreaming of ufos because what else is there yeah (laughs) my my theory is that in fact they probably were kind of like sort of you know hyperkinetic attention seekers out there you know the sort of dealy bopper types who then like like unleashed in the early 80s top of the pops but that they were deliberately um filtered out the process it would have been sort of unseemly to have people getting too kind of you know off off, off their rockers you know on Mm. on top of the pops and they perhaps deliberately selected a kind of a more subdued crowd or dictated you know this uh, this kind of subdued level of like response from the audiences as with all soulful vocal groups of the era uh, the thing i like about watching any footage of bands like the stylistics and stuff because there's always one and it's usually the bass singer who mm. looks like an absolute fucking murderer <laughs> <laughs> you can just imagine him like you know in the open air gym at attica just wearing a do-rag and <laughs> lifting a barbell the size of a pig. <laughs> there's always one. There's one little cute one, and there's one absolutely fucking hard bastard who, <laughs> who just rip your head off as soon as look at you. Mm. Yeah. So the following week, 16 bars nudged up one place to number 11 and would eventually get to number 7 for two weeks in September. It would be their last ever top 10 hit, however. The follow-up, You'll Never Get to Heaven, only got to number 24 in December of this year. Mm. The follow-up to that $7,000 and you also got to number 24 in April of 1977. And after that, they were done in the UK charts. When you, when you get fluff on the needle with stylus sticks, what a beautiful song, what lovely words. And if you really like lyrics, if you like a really good love song and you like to see somebody singing words and really making them meaningful, just listen to this next song. Thank you. 
Williams acts the right cunt once again, commenting this time on the lyrical content of the next single, an instrumental. Ho ho ho! It's Aria by Acker Bilk. Born Bernard Bilk in Pensford, Somerset in 1929, Acker Bilk was a former worker at the Will Cigarette Factory in Bristol, who learned to play the clarinet while undertaking national service. After working as a blacksmith by day and jazz musician by night, he moved to London in 1951 to play in Ken Collier's Jazzmen, but hated it there and went back home to form the Chew Valley Jazzmen. And then he returned with them to the capital later that year under the name Mr. Acker Bilk and the Paramount Jazz Band. By the late 50s, Bilk found himself as a key component of the trad jazz boom and he made his chart debut in 1960 when Somerset got to number five in March of that year. This kicked off a run of eight top 30 hits throughout the early 60s, which peaked in 1961 when Stranger on the Shore got to number two for three weeks in January of that year, held off the top spot by The Young Ones by Cliff Richard. It did much better in America, though, when it became the second UK single to get to number one there after Vera Lynn's Alveda Zane Sweetheart in 1952. A year later, he appeared in not one, but two films, a guest appearance in It's Trad Dad, and then him and his band playing prisoners in the film Band of Thieves. But when the beat boom kicked in, he was done as a chart act until now. Because this single, an instrumental cover of the 1975 French hit single that was performed by Sheila B. Devotion when she was just known as Sheila, has become his first hit in 13 years when his cover of A Taste of Honey got to number 16 in February of 1963. It's up this week from number 44 to number 34 and here he is on his own in the studio accompanied by the Terpsichorean wonderment of Pate at a ruby flipper. And the disorientating thing about this, when it starts off, this has got practically the same tune and chords as 16 bars. Yes. Did you notice this? Yes. So it's like, it really catches you off guard. It's like he's done an instant cover. Yes. (laughs) But to be honest, I preferred his version of the Mr. Men theme. Um, Yes. I know he's, he's sort of a quietly mildly respected old gentleman of british jazz mm. old old kathy as he was known in the dressing room um <laughs> and but you know in his day back before rebellious musicians were really rebellious bunking mm. off a a straight career to play clarinet like a black american or you know a little tiny bit like a black american was actually a pretty remarkable thing to do mm. so this is a genuine music lover you know, right here. Not somebody picking up a career off the peg, uh, mm. you know, or taking a lifestyle off the peg, he, like a lot of younger musicians. But in the end, British jazzers are like French rockers. Do you know what I mean? It never really works because the instinctive fire just isn't there. Oh, and hang on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Fuck Roy Castle. <laughs> you saying he didn't have dedication? It, rather than taking the, the building blocks of the form and starting again in your own original style, a la mm. Cam, it's usually a case of just perfecting your swing at an object that's always just slightly out of reach. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and what's interesting is a few years after this, the British blues scene, which was 
very similar and could have gone the same way, would mm. find a way to bust out of this dead yeah. end, right, with a combination of uh, youth and new technology. But it never really happened with British jazz. And no. by this point, it, British jazz is forked in two directions. There's the older fellas still chuntering away with a pint of heavy ale and a fisherman's sweater, yes. which is very much where... Uh, Mr. Acker Bilk belongs. And then young jazz heads uh, abandoning pure jazz for like prog and and art rock, which Mm. I guess is one way to live with the awkward, desexualized reserve of British jazz, which is to play a consciously awkward and desexualized style of music. And Mm. although, you know, I like a lot of soft machine stuff and that, it ain't on the corner. And neither it's fair to say is this right it's just him stood there like a statue or a a monument with pigeons mm. shitting on his head you know just mm. maybe why he wears the bowler hat i mean yeah. it's a it's a bit like being in port sunlight or bourneville or one yeah. of those. it's like it's nice but it's creepy and you're sort of aware that you're inside a quaint facsimile. But yeah, another one, another one for the nuns. Nuns are being served. This was always the trade-off, yeah, between the kind of the grand and the kids. And yeah, and this would have really pressed me at the time. It's sort of, you know, the slowing yeah. of the pace. You know, it's all sort of, you yes. know, living in houses. We did at that, given that time of like pre-war furniture. You know, most of the furniture in my house is from the 1920s and 30s. And I think that was the case for a lot of people. And, you know, and it was like having to sit through Charlie Chester's radio soapbox, you know, before the sort of top mm. 20 rundown on a Sunday. It's all those kind of redolences of like, you know, pre-pop time or whatever. And like you say, yeah, they're for the sort of grandparents and what have you. What's interesting for yeah. me actually about, I mean, straight, I haven't said, I mean, now, I mean, I do actually like, strangers on the shore a lot actually and and it's interesting you mentioned like it's trad dad and there was that moment just before the Beatles emerged and when no one really knew what the 60s was going to be about you know in the UK pop wise I mean you know people weren't anticipating this beat revolution I mean there was no no one was taking it for granted at all that rock and roll was just going to kind of carry on in some sort of you know in various kind of mutations you know that could have been a passing Mm. thing and trad trad jazz was seriously mooted as the way ahead for the 1960s and something like Ackerbilt yeah. could have been seen as somebody you know as a kind of cornerstone now it's interesting that obviously that's not what happened um no. you know it's strange to think of like trad jazz gaining that kind of sort of currency but he found a way of converting it into some sort of pop form or whatever and yeah mm. people thought that, that that might happen I mean, it'd be odd like you know kind of like ornick coleman and people like that albert island doing their thing out in america and then trad jazz over yeah. in the uk um but then of course the beatles happened and and that's squelched everything basically it squelched all these Mm. kind of alternative 60s you know some of which could have been quite radical some of which could have been pretty pretty staid so it's ironic there's now this delay of about 14 years and then it's like the Beatles are definitely not coming back now I think 76 and then you realize that the game's up there and in a similar situation where at this point nobody really quite knows again what is going to happen next you know and and it's like Mm. they show off as a kind of range of like potential some pretty kind of dismal options really so maybe Acker thinks okay you know maybe my sort of you know maybe the kind of wheels turn and my um you know my my numbers up again yeah and then then Johnny Rotten came along and 
Yeah, Foxes that's right, and squelched him a second time. And I think the only two other surviving Ackerbilt things in the culture I can think of, do you know what he was in the Stackers advert? Do you remember when Pringles were Stackers? Oh, yes. Yeah. And they did a big sort of like jingle around Stackers, and of course Stackers rhymes with Acker, and so they have a kind of brief snatch of Ackerbilt in there, playing a bit of Strange on the Shore or whatever, so he makes a brief appearance there. Nice. Yeah, they went to Paul McCartney, but he said, nah. <laughs> I won't do that right now, yeah. please. <laughs> <laughs> but the other one is uh, he's on the KLF Chill Out album. You know, there's a kind of um, Strange on the Shore is a kind of recurring mm. motif in that kind of great ambient flow. I didn't know until I was doing the research for this that this was a Sheila B. Devotion mm. song. No. What a shame Acker didn't have a go at Spacer a couple of years later. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> An interesting way of putting this song over, uh, I believe, because, you know, Acker's standing there in a green waistcoat and a bowler hat. And with his beard and that and that outfit, he looks the dead spit of the logo of the Notre Dame fighting Irish American football team. <laughs> um, but yeah, they've drafted in uh, Patty out of Ruby Flipper. And, you know, as the show goes on, we're going to find out that they're... They're going to run Ruby Flipper into the ground until they get rid of him, aren't they? Yeah, definitely, yeah. They're working him hard. They're on quite a lot. Yeah. And uh, they use video effects to have Patty dancing in the background. An overlay, if you will. The thing is, that's obviously supposed to be a bit of visual sweetening because I think nobody wants to look at this motionless old man for three yeah. minutes. But in a way, it spoils it because that's sort yes. of what's cool about him. Like He's not like a human. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, he's just this unchanging, emotionless silhouette. And whenever you see him from like uh, you know, at any point in his career, he's just standing there. He's got his tip foot and his clarinet and it's completely unmoving. Like he'd be there as like, as hurricanes swept entire streets away behind him, you know. Yeah, like, looking exactly the same as he, he would have done 16 years previously, but in yeah. colour this time. Yeah, he doesn't raise an eyebrow or an elbow. You know, surely Akabilk in colour would have been enough of a thrill for the viewers. I think just generally, you, you just need to whack him on a shore, basically, for your visual backdrop. That's what you need to do. Yeah, on his own. Yeah. Well, there's something genuinely sinister about that look as well in 1976. Like the mm. bowler hat and the shiny green waistcoat. It's like a geriatric clockwork orange. It's like, yes. like he's going to very yes. slowly break into your house and shove his clarinet down the end of your cock, you know. Going up to his grandson, going, oh, that giggly Google, he's good, isn't he? <laughs> he's proper horror film, he is. <laughs> Although in 1976, having a clarinet shoved down the end of your cock would not be a totally unfamiliar sensation to anyone who'd been to a sexual health clinic. Because <laughs> I, I tell you, I had a checkup recently myself, and things have come on leaps and bounds in terms oh. of patient comfort. Because I remember as late as the nineties, uh, the terror of a simple chlamydia swab. You know, uh, nowadays <laughs> it's it's two seconds of mild discomfort. But back then, that's what she said. Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> but back then they had to go right inside, so to speak. Um, which they don't now. And back then, it's funny, sexual health clinics in London then were almost exclusively staffed by gay and lesbian Australians. Um, this <laughs> being a time when... Well, this being a time when Australia was still one of the most homophobic places in the free world and mm. London one of the least. So gay Australians would seek refuge here in huge numbers. And a lot of them would naturally end up working in uh, gay charities or sexual health clinics because, mm. you know, AIDS was a major concern. So you'd go in there 
and you'd find yourself standing with your trousers down with a very camp Queenslander crouching <laughs> in front of you, holding what looked like a plastic coffee stirrer and like oh. trying to trying to distract you because you know it's worse if you tense up right in anticipation so it try and catch you out like you it get you to look in another direction and then it'd say like oh you're going on holiday you just seem fiddling with a bit of kit and he'd say you're going on holiday anywhere nice this year and you go no mate i haven't got the money <laughs> and you like in your head you did like a swanny whistle like <laughs> Um, yeah, and fe- experience a terrible feeling of violation. Mm. I mean, I remember leaving there and having to get a cab home because walking just felt unnatural. And I was just sitting in the back with a thousand yards. To- I came out of there uh, feeling like John McCain in 1973. You know what I mean? <laughs> Although not an exact parallel as he could no longer raise his arms past a 90-degree angle. So the, the wormholes of Taylor's mind. Um, I was just thinking, what, yeah. a, what a great party game. Yes, the wormholes of Taylor's mind. <laughs> I could build to chlamydia in two minutes. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's not so long ago, a discussion about the Wurzels became a discussion about shoveling dead lambs into plastic bags at four o'clock <laughs> yes. in the morning. And now we can leap from Ackerbilt, you know, to, to full anal penetration. I mean, it's, it's um, there you go. But I would suggest that Ackerbilt to chlamydia in two minutes. Yeah, not the first time that's happened. <laughs> <laughs> this song's one of, yeah, going back to the song very quickly. It's one of these songs that you don't know the title of until all of a sudden it just whacks you in the face because this tune, obviously I knew it was Akabilk. Who else could it be? But this song used to get played every night in the late 80s at the Bullwell Apollo Bingo Hall where I worked as a change giver <laughs> on, uh, in the evening. And so immediately when I heard this song, you know, Patty's doing her best to be all ethereal and everything, but I'm I'm just thinking of just sitting there with my bow tie off at the end of a shift uh, after I've had my arse mauled by elderly women. <laughs> There's just a pall of fag smoke hanging in the air because everyone was chuffing the fags. It was like a scene out of Apocalypse Now at the end of that bingo hall. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, thank, thanks, Akka. <laughs> The following week, Aria leapt 12 places to number 22 and would get as high as number 5. Alas, it would be his last hit, but he kept on touring, ended up playing on three Van Morrison LPs and died at the age of 85 in 2012. Acker is uh, his local slang for mate, yeah, apparently. Yeah, right. Which means that if he was going today, he'd be known as Mandem Bilk. <laughs> <laughs> That's Ackerbilk. The one with the bowler hat was Ackerbilk. The one with the white dress was Sydney from Ruby Flipper. And that was an aria. This is the Chai Lights. And you don't have to go. Ed 
Collins finally bothers to pay Ackerbilt the compliment of saying his fucking name and what the tune is before pointing out that it was being danced to by Sydney. Sydney? Yeah. What the fuck's that all about? Hmm. I, I, I had to go research that. And no, apparently there's no one called Sydney in uh, in Ruby Flipper. Do you think that's uh, Edmonds being absolutely blatantly disrespectful to Ruby Flipper there? Well, the thing with Edmonds, there's no way to tell. He could have been trying to be funny in some way and failing dismally. Yeah. It could have yeah. been a short-lived stage name or he could just have got it wrong. Mm. Like desperately yeah. wrong. He finally gets round to introducing You Don't Have to Go by the Chai Lights. We've already covered the Chai Lights in chart music number nine when Pan's people did a turn to Homely Girl. And since then, they've had four more UK chart hits, including Too Good to Be Forgotten and Have You Seen Her. This is a follow-up to It's Time for Love, which got to number five earlier this year. And it's up this week from number 17 to number nine. Sadly, they're not in the country and they haven't done a video, so the BBC have resorted to their old trick of slapping an old cartoon over it. And in this case, it's the 1936 Warner Brothers cartoon, Page Miss Glory. Oh, and I'm just going to stop there and just pat myself on the back for finding that mm. out. Outstanding bit of research by me there. It, it, it was a complete stroke of luck. I found possibly the only comments on YouTube that was informative and not racist. <laughs> <laughs> so whoever whoever said that, thank you. It's it's an old grey whistle test thing, really, isn't it? They used to do this all the time. It is exactly old grey whistle test. I, I always felt when they did this sort of thing on the old grey whistle test, there was a sort of like element of sort of white prog condescension or whatever, you know, that like, you know, that, mm. that, that the kind of like the music that they were kind of performing on OG was a kind of, you know, stratospheres above and beyond this kind of banal cartoonery and yeah. what have you and frippery of the 20th century. Using ink and paper yes. instead of um, two fret guitars. Yeah, yeah. And four synths. We've seen this before, haven't we? Like when we, uh, what was it? We saw Silver Convention. Doing you get, get up, up and, and boogie. boogie, yeah, yeah, and well done to the BBC for finding a cartoon that wasn't racist. Yeah, it makes a change, but it, yeah, it, but it's it still creeps the hell out of me. As I said before, like any animation mm. from before about 1940, I find horrifying, and yeah, it's. I mean, objectively, this is a lovely animation with the Art Deco yes. feel and and the really basic but really fluid. Uh, animation uh but it stinks of death to me and it's the same with all these however pleasantly dotty they look it just yeah reeks of the tomb and what's more it fatally distracts you from the music because it doesn't complement the song in the slightest so the first time around i was just staring horrified at the pictures and you know i could have been hearing the (laughs) the chai lights or i could have been hearing a a waste disposal unit crunching up a handful of walnuts. You know, it wouldn't have made any difference. You might as well have put this this music to a still picture of Tub Girl. Uh, it would have been just as pleasing to the soul. A lot of the imagery in the cartoon is is sophistication and, you know, champagne and all that kind of stuff, which, which kind of like goes with sort of later period disco, you know, the kind of like chic kind of stuff. But there's that one scene where you, you see a, a glass of champagne being tipped into someone's mouth from the point of view of the tonsils, yeah, which is really disturbing. Yeah, mm. yeah. But I do like the fact that they don't 
give a toss about the massive amount of print damage. <laughs> just yeah. shove it out anyway. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I suppose there's it's, it's that kind of weird sort of art deco feel feel to it. I mean, you know, I think that. Mm. Um, then and that sort of Art Deco sort of forces things, you know, with Manhattan transfer, and then you know, started earlier on. It's um, it just seems to be a sort of you know a kind of motif at this point in in pop music for whatever reason. Um, it's weird with these old Warner mm. Warner's cartoons, very early Warner, but you know, consider like they made genuinely funny cartoons later on. That I think you would laugh at today if you saw them. Any you know, Bugs Bunny, yes. Daffy, but very early cartoons that they do. It's like the sensibility is a bit weird. It's like Betty Boop or anything kind of things. There's somewhere. It's just like they're obviously supposed to be funny in some way, but they've got this weird sort of Busby Bartley thing going on, and the sheer excitement of yeah. like you know, of like you know, full animation, whatever. You know, they're they're very yeah. strange to watch. Really, you know, they really make you feel like you know. People before the war were just totally different creatures in terms of their sort of comedy mm. sensibilities or whatever. It's you know it's hard to really know what they're they're trying to do. You know when you watch when you watch cartoons like that. Um, and then it, and then post war, then suddenly it's like, it's like it's like really early Daffy Duck, where he's not this kind of sort of misanthropic creature or whatever. He's just sort of manic, you know. And it's just like that's meant to be funny somehow, you know. Um, and then they kind of sort of get a sensibility that's just right and it still works today. It's really hard. Yeah. yeah, with this stuff, at least 60% of it is uh, banking on the audience thinking, the pictures, they're coming alive. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. 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 I mean, the way Top of the Pops do this, it, w- it would be, the equivalent would be some grime tune on the telly, but set to bod. Or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Or Gideon. Crystal Tips and Alistair. Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the song, Isn't It Fucking Mint? Absolutely. Because I thought I knew the Childlights back to front. I love that band to bits. This song came out of nowhere to me. Mm. It's like, I'm, I'm fucking out. It is properly decent. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, the, the compare and contrast to the stylistics, you know, stylistics are quite happy to um, plough their uh, groove or their rut, if you will. Mm. Childlights are picking up the pace a bit and having a go, trying out the new style. And it's it's paid off for a big style. Definitely. Yeah, this is the the one other record on it which has the same fluidity and movement as the Can record. And it but it mm. takes off from there in a completely different direction, you know. But the the rhythm section on this are miraculous. In a purely nineteen seventies way, but as far as I'm concerned, that's the best way. Yes. I mean it's got that kind of feel of like Rose Royce car wash whatever, you know, that driving electric keyboard yes. thing, which I think Stevie Wonder might have gone, it was going that direction even early before he discovered like Arp and Moog synths or whatever. It's, um, yeah, mm. it, it, it absolutely bristles. It's it, it, it's sheer electric. It's funny though, generally, I mean, there's so many, if you look at the chart rundown and how much kind of, it's so strange that there is, that, you know, that, that, that people are accustomed to sort of, you know, black faces or whatever on top of the pops or whatever in the charts or whatever. There's clearly this great acceptance when it comes to poor old Floyd, it's just like, what, a black man? You know, it's really odd, really. He's not singing, you see. I think partly why this is so good is that it's not just a good record, it's a good song, which isn't yes. always completely necessary with this kind of track. You can get by on a rhythm uh, and a hook, but Chilight's always had good songs, you see. Mm. Like, stylistics mm. records aren't always based on such interesting songs. They're about the whole sound experience, you know. Um Whereas this, it's, it's co-written by Barbara Acklin, isn't it? Who also Ooh, yes. co-wrote, like, Have You Seen Her and Stoned Out of My Mind and all those things. Um, and they're always 
it's like proper songwriting, if you know what I mean, where there always has to be some kind of imaginative hook to the song, like to create some sort of world or environment in the lyrics that you can latch on to. And it really makes a big difference when you listen to it, almost on a subconscious level, it hooks into your brain. Um, it's not just love cliches or sex cliches. There's a, a sort of a slightly intriguing situation here where this guy is excited but he's also losing control of his emotions and he's conscious yeah. of that too um and you just get a feeling i mean there's only like, hardly any words in this song but it's enough to make you think that he's setting off down a wrong road and something this relationship is going to go badly wrong um <laughs> i mean all all the best soul records have a psychological or psychosexual element to them and yeah. with heavy soul, it's usually really obvious and upfront, right? Like when Otis Redding sings, you know, I've been loving you too long to stop now. You're tired and mm. you want to be free. My love grows stronger as you become a habit to me. It's not just Ooh. riveting because of the delivery. It's because this emotional car crash that's obviously happening is spelt out to you in the words and everything's right up yeah. front. But with pop soul, as in every kind of pop, the great thing is that it's all done with suggestion and in a sort of a vague, understated way. So it doesn't get in the way of it being a pop tune. But it also means it doesn't sound like a clear emotional statement. And in some ways, it makes it more interesting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, yeah. there's just that hint. There's just that hint of darkness and chaos. Uh, yeah. And a lot of the time in top 40 soul that's just done with the vocal but it's best mm. when it's done in the actual song which is why the best ever commercial soul record is bernadette by the four tops yeah because it's a horrifying horrifying psychological portrait of this bloke that bernadette should clearly emigrate to avoid you know like <laughs> and he's pledging his obviously genuine love and affection and it's just a huge red flag fluttering in a strong breeze. It's like, run, run, Bernadette, run. And Levi Stubbs <laughs> sings it like he's on the verge of a breakdown and the music is yes. full of all this desperation and emotional turbulence. But you know that at least one cloth-eared sap was going out with someone called Bernadette and bought it for mm. a year. This is our tune. This expresses how I feel yeah. about you. Well, this song isn't in the same class as that song because not many are. But this song hints at feelings and situations which aren't made explicit and there's just enough drama and unease in the music to flag that up without it being a recital, you know. It's, mm. not, it's not just an intense one-dimensional statement, which is why it's still pop. I mean, it's yeah. it's not. I, I you know I agree with Mark definitely. And I mean, you know, there's this sort of palpable sense of nervousness in this song, and it's physically conveyed in the sort of texture of the song as well. I mean, you know, it isn't just a sort of lyrical theme. You feel it. You know, I mean, I, I suppose. Oh, I mean, Bernadette is another great example. Um, and I don't know. Um, I don't know why I love you. That's at Stevie Wonder, wasn't it? And I mean, the way you know that like, he builds that is almost like sort of suffocating in that song or whatever. You know, it's it's yeah. That's it's. it's I'm just going to say that I think it's. A lot of people were very, very depressed, I'm sure, at this time when, like, sort of older sort of soul groups or singers went disco. And I think there's just nothing better than when that happened. 
Um, you yeah. know, Diana Ross, love Hangover. I mean, is just absolutely magnificent. And the fact of, you know, like having a kind of a regular beat or whatever, you know, in no way compromises the quality of the songwriting or the quality of the vocal performance or any of those elements or whatever. And when you get to get right into the early 80s, you had people like the Dramatics who made this great single, I Can't Stand It, you know, and that's you know, that, that, that's superb, mm. whatever. And I'm sure that a lot of their diehard fans felt that they're just utterly sold out. But no, it's 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 it's, it's evolution, whatever, you know. Even the Aretha Franklin stuff yeah. in the early 80s, you know, similar thing. Yeah, because, you know, the, 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 the received knowledge is that, you know, just like... The prog bands were washed away by punk. All the old soul and early seventies singers and bands were done in by disco. But this is this is a prime example why that train of thought is completely bollocks, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, in a lot yeah. of cases, it actually saved them artistically. Like yeah. what was Diana yeah. Ross doing well, before Love Hangover? Just a load of shitty Broadway. Do you know where you go yeah, into? Yeah, yeah. And she didn't. <laughs> this song could be filed away with the likes of "Come Back and Finish What You Started." by uh, Gladys Knight and the yeah. Pips and uh, Rubber Band Man by the Detroit Spinners. Mm. Got to give it up by Marvin Gaye. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well done, Chai Lights. So the following week, You Don't Have to Go stayed at number nine, but a week later it jumped up all the way to number three, its highest position. However, it was their last appearance in the UK charts until they had a couple of minor hits in 1983. <laughs> That's a delightful creatures on that film. That's uh, you don't have to go, so you can take your cycle clips off, settle down. The chai lights, of course, followed by highlights, fashion highlights from the autumn collection of Hardy Amy's. And just look what the well-dressed exhibitionist is going to be wearing in the coming months. Absolutely delighted by that cartoon, warns of the garb sported by Ruby Flipper as he introduces Morning Glory by James and Bobby Purify. Born in Florida in 1944 and 1939 respectively, James Purify and his cousin Robert Dicker teamed up as a duo in 1965 and they were signed to Bell Records in 1966. They scored a top five hit in the US right off the bat when I'm Your Puppet got to number four there in 1966. But by the time the original duo split up in 1971, they had not made any kind of a dent in the UK charts. After a three-year solo career, James Purify linked up with Ben Moore, a singer who had worked with James Brown and Otis Redding, and he adopted the stage name Bobby Purify. Their re-recording of I'm Your Puppet finally put them over in the UK, getting to number 12 in May of this year. This is the follow-up, written by Uwe Bushcotter, who did the music for the opening ceremony for the 1972 Munich Olympics and assorted jingles for German adverts. And it's risen this week from number 28 to number 27. And here, finally... Or Ruby Flipper in their entirety. Edmonds really liked that cartoon. Do you think he was kind of like getting himself into a swap shop frame of mind? 
for all them Hong Kong fooies. I think it's just his aesthetic sense is so degraded that he just thought it was brilliant. <laughs> it's just the sort of level of stimulus he requires. Mm. But I hate Edmonds more than ever for his introduction to this, right? Chuckling uh. at their stupid outfits. Um, partly just because it's very rude, yeah. and I, I believe if you've got nothing nice to say, you should say nothing at all. Quite right. Uh, but also because 40 years on, it takes you out of the moment, right? It does no one any good to be reminded yeah. that even in the 70s, a lot of people thought extreme 70s clothing looked a bit silly. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So you people have this vague idea now that back then it was just how it was, and you might go to the fishmongers and be standing next to a bloke who looked like Roy Wood. It's the, no, no, the <laughs> place was full of fellas in non-platform shoes and manageable flares yeah. dressed in earth tones. The Rigsby's and Blakey's right, of the world. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember as a, an adolescent in the 80s, I'd look at high street fashions then and think, no, that looks objectively terrible and in the future people will laugh at you. And nothing's mm. changed the second time around, yeah. seeing these fucking idiots dressed like China Crisis walking <laughs> around Hackney, yes. you know, like, as if they were wearing a 1920s gangster suit. Uh but you don't need it years <laughs> later. You don't want some prick like Edmonds in his Hepworth's get-up popping that balloon mm. because it's nicer to wallow, you know. And if someone's yeah. wearing a lilac blouse with collars like a wingspan of a golden eagle, that's interesting. <laughs> and sometimes it's yeah. the only interesting thing on the screen. Um, so it's a yeah. marker of difference in time. And it's nice to remember that, or it's important to remember that this fashion psychosis was not universal. But you don't need mm. like a prick with an estate agent beard getting in the way of the visual feast. Oh, look at these pop people wearing pop clothes on a pop yeah. show. Isn't that odd? Fuck I mean, it's just, it's just a reminder that you had this whole generation of like male DJs who palpably knew nothing and cared less for the sort of subject matter that they were hosting. It's just absolutely extraordinary. I mean, that would just not be tolerated only a few years later. But where do we start on this? The, the, the dancing or the song? Ruby Flipper. Yeah, OK. Which sounds like a, a, a slang term for a, a, a kind of weird sexual practice. You know what I mean? Like mm. a... or, or something that Chris Morris would say to that paedophile, along with Bunty Man. <laughs> I think of it more as like a like a dirty Sanchez or something. It's like a, mm. a some revolting thing. It's, it's something. It's a ruby flipper. You know, you can only you and your good lady wife can only only do it five days out of every month. <laughs> well, here they are, ruby flipper. I mean, Flick Colby was looking to do something new after Pan's people were wearing the same things and doing the same things, and you know, after what three months or so, looks like she's given up on that. Yeah. Well, let's straight away. The main problem here is Philip Steggles. <laughs> let's mm. be honest. He's the guy out yes. of Ruby Flipper who's got like a gormless, gurning face and thinning hair yeah. and quite clumsy movements. And it's fair to say that had he been female auditioning for any Top of the Pops dance troupe, he wouldn't have made the cut. So you have to wonder... Mm how he made it in. Well, surely they could have found a better dancer who looked better just by dangling a hook into a gay disco and just pulling out whatever, yes. you know. Just get Benny from the steam room. doesn't matter. But you know, you've got <laughs> Philip, in, and he's got these silver wellies, and it's like he's wearing diving boots. 
just uh, yeah. what a waste of everyone's time. And he looks so pleased with himself. But I think those mm. facial expressions might be ironic, but come on, man. Have the yeah. courage of your convictions. He doesn't look right in that outfit. He doesn't seem yeah. to suit... He, do, he doesn't look right dancing. He's got the kind of face that doesn't no. look right above a dancing body, which is a bit unfortunate no. in his profession. It's like... No. He looks like a second string of play away, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Brian Brian Kant's got the flu, <laughs> and the Scottish bloke out of it ain't our fault mum's not available. So, yeah, give, give Philip a call. It's like watching Jeremy <laughs> Hunt do kung fu. <laughs> it's very distracting. He, he, he is the worst. He's very much... The olive on the trifle. Mm. <laughs> yeah, he's got that Jeremy Hunt streak of piss thing about him, hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. But I suppose at this point, aren't they all yeah. kind of working out their notice, basically? Pretty much so, yeah. They know they're leaving. Yeah. Uh, they're waiting for the axe to fall. Yeah, which is ironic that they're kind of being used so often, really. It's, uh, you know... We're getting a lot of Flick Colby signature moves, aren't we? A lot, of, a lot of finger work, a lot of finger wagging, and well, it has to be kind of energy and gyration or whatever, but it can't be too full on. It all has to kind of accord with BBC restrictions and protocols. So you get this strange sort of. Mm. There's a lot of marching up and down. Yes. Oh yeah, yes. always dynamism. Always yeah. a fallback yeah. for Flick. Yes, definitely. There is an element of comedy about this performance, isn't it? Yeah. It's like look at us in our silly clothes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it detracts from the uh, sultry eroticism. Well, this is, nobody wants sultry eroticism from men on TV. No, because you know? it's like no. it's basically it's like if you get a male dancer dancing in a genuinely erotic way, it's like having a cock thrust at you like the Grange Hill sausage. <laughs> yes, yeah. you know, and I think most people would recoil if you're having a late tea because it's August. Yeah, that's not what you want, is it? Well, it's very strange, isn't it, that the yeah. objection to that it should be an all-female duo that the whole thing is predicated on the idea that Top of the Pops is entirely for male consumption, which is very strange. Exactly, yeah. Very odd. And there's not really much interaction between the males and the females, is there, apart from all yeah. oh, here are us doing our little winsome fingery bits. And here's us marching around in our spangly wellies. That whole sentence sounded like my adolescence. But, I mean, is, is it their fault or is it the song's fault? Uh, yeah. I mean, the song is it's passable, but it, it sounds very dated when mm. you after we've just had the chai lights. Mm. It's got that bit of a northern solely feel to it. Yeah, sort of pass its sell-by date beaten feel to it, all told really, definitely. Yeah, it's funny yeah. because before we recorded, we all individually said we didn't have a lot to say about this record. Mm. Um, and it's interesting. I don't know if anyone else gets this the same way, but for me, this is one of those records that I know, um, and I've known all my life, but if you'd played it to me without an introduction, I couldn't have named it, uh, and I couldn't have named the mm. act. Which is a shame because no. they've got one of the best names I've ever heard. <laughs> James of Bobby yeah. Purify, there's no denying, is a, is a yeah. great name. But even if, even though it's a lie, it's a different Bobby Purify and it's another one of those David Ansel Collins, isn't it? Yeah, but like every other set of supposed brothers in pop history, they never are when you look into it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, and also, you think that the bloke's Bobby Purify as well. And it's not, it's James Purify. Yeah. And Bobby Purify is not Bobby Purify at all. It's just lie upon lie, isn't it? Well, it's like Mr. and Mrs. Frank McKenzie. I mean, people yes. used to be yeah, addressed that's that true, way. Yeah. 
I imagine if Bobby Purify, who doesn't even exist, teamed up with the band James. Can you imagine how awful that would be? <laughs> See, this is yes. this is the kind of speculation we're reduced to here, listening to this. Yeah. The only thing that occurred, you know, it, that occurred to me when I was listening to this, I got a kind of flashback to... Um, to my own 1976, and not to give Dover Rollers Shutters another plug, um, you know, my dad, the firm my dad used to work for. Go ahead, uh, Although they, they're, now, they're now all wound up, sadly. But, um, yeah, it used to take me out. It used to, it, 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 his job used will. to involve going to um, various cities, Sheffield, Nottingham, Manchester, and, like, going onto these kind of light industrial estates and sort of, like, dealing with, you know, dealing with sort of sales inquiries or whatever, you know, about roller shutters and quite often as a, as a treat I'd, I'd accompany him on these sort of you know long journeys mm. and um, I'd be sitting in the front seat there and, and he'd have to go in like and I'd be sat in the kind of car in some utterly bleak jejune um, like industrial estate in um, you know in the East Midlands or whatever and I'd have a like giant pile of beanos I'd have a bottle of pop and a couple of bags of crisps and um, you know at times it could be pretty heavy and Radio 1 on you know Diddy David Hamilton or whatever in the afternoon Your dad let you have the radio on in the car when it was parked up. Oh God, yeah. Oh man. Oh, there've been protests, there've been ructions otherwise. Oh, some people yeah. fucking spoilt rotten, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, we had it. Yeah, I had it good. I had it good. What's weird? I don't really recall going to the toilet in those. Days. I mean, I, you know, you think now, you know, you need like little personal break every sort of hour and hour. I used to be able to go all day without going to the toilet, despite you know, sort of you know, drinking. Um, Whatever you know, it's coke and it's not usually something that sticks in your mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember this great piss I had in 1988 <laughs> because it would have been pretty tricky to negotiate. Actually, it's like you know, you... <laughs> really. I mean, what would you do? I mean, it's you know, it's like Dad, can I come in with you? And have they got a toilet there? Because I'm you know, I'm full of like um, Pepsi. It's like the Sweeney where they're staked out in the back of a camouflage van and they have to pass a milk bottle around. Many, 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 many times um, <laughs> I, I would have made these kind of jaunts. And not once. It would have. Did I, did I ever actually do that? Do you need to go to the toilet, son? You've been sitting in there since 9.15 drinking Coca-Cola. And you must have a pretty full balance. No, it's fine. Didn't even ask, actually. But I think 95% of the inside of little kids is made up of their bladder. Because yeah. that's just what Absolutely. they're like. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Which gradually reduces to the present day of 5%, basically. <laughs> yeah, because of the size of a, a shrunken pea. Yeah. yeah. I'm still here, by the way. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of a piss I had in 1976 to add something to the conversation. But <laughs> no, I can't. I'm sorry. Sorry, Pop Craze Youngsters, I've failed you. So you can blame James and Bobby Purify for this conversation. Yeah. I was just thinking, this. Being instantly recognisable, but nobody knows what the fuck it is until you tell them. It's like yeah. all those actors who used to turn up all the time in TV drama who everyone recognised, but no one could name, right? You just think, mm. oh, it's him or who? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I don't know his name. It's like people who... If you, him on the telly all the time. Yeah, if you look at IMDb, they may or may not have a picture next to their name. You know, people who would have made a pretty good <laughs> yeah. living out of acting, rarely out of work, but who had... Slightly less face name recognition than Colin Jeevens, you know what I mean? And respect to Colin Jeevens for my homie for clawing his way out of that particular brand tub. But there were loads of these people. I'm just trying to think. There was David Lodge, uh, Nick Stringer, Clive Merrison, uh, Ron Pember, uh, 
Mike Grady. I mean, if I showed you or anyone else aged above 35 photographs of these people, you'd recognise them instantly. But almost nobody ever knew their names. Imagine if they'd done a TV show with all of those actors in, man. People's people's heads would explode, wouldn't they? <laughs> I, know. I mean, I only know their names because I became so fascinated by this phenomenon that I looked it all up. You know, mm. but yeah, you'd see these people in a. They might have a bit part in a BBC costume drama or an advert for Super Noodles. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It just they, it's weird. But they were all famous in a way. Yeah. You know, it's like some of them would carve out a niche, like uh, Talfrin Thomas. You know, you'd say, "Oh, it's the Welsh bloke with the fucked up teeth." Yeah, he's called Talfrin Thomas, but nobody knew it. Yeah. Or um, what's his name? Paul Brook. <laughs> exactly. Paul Brook. Exactly. You say, oh, it's the fat bloke with the wonky eye. Yeah, he's Paul Brook. Right. It's why I yeah. have a lot of respect for Clive Swift, because at one point, Clive Swift, it was, oh, it's the little balding bloke with the posh voice. No, 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 but he he was so good that by the time he died, he'd made it up to, oh, it's Clive Swift. Very impressive. Yeah. Very impressive, that is. I, I guess... Milton Johns was on the borderline of this, right? 50% mm. of British people would say, oh, it's Milton Johns. And the other 50% would say, oh, it's the thin, bold, slimy bloke. Is his name Clive Merrison? No, no, no. It's but Milton Johns cheated because <laughs> he was in so many Doctor Whos that all the Doctor Who fans know him, which bumps up his name recognition because those lunatics remember everything. Mm. Uh, yeah. But I no, I'm fascinated by these people. And... No, no, no. In fact, the whole point is I'm not actually fascinated by these people. I'm fascinated by the fact that they're just there. And when you're feeling especially alienated, it's quite a good thing to examine things with which you're very familiar, but which you've never really thought about, just to make the world Mm. seem a little bit more real. Although Mm. I'm not sure that really applies to Morning Glory by James and Bobby Purify, which (laughs) is it's the most all right of all right records do you know what i mean yeah and the only yeah what to sum it all up it's neither the best nor the worst record i can think of with the phrase morning glory <laughs> in the title well exactly yeah this and this is something that needs to be addressed because i mean for fuck's sake it's a damning critique upon the year of 1976 that, that nobody not the dancers uh not certainly not edmunds alludes to the fact that the, the song's named after a bonk on <laughs> I mean what they should have done was like you you know when the Beastie Boys did that tour in 1987 with Run DMC and they'd finish by doing Fight for Your Right to Parter and then all of a sudden these massive inflatable cocks would just burst out of these boxes and just completely fill the stage Flick Colby why why didn't you do that that would have been amazing (laughs) yeah it's like you're getting sacked anyway yeah so that would make Philip Steggall's Roger Moore eyebrow raise even higher so, the following week, Morning Glory went all detumescent, dropping six places to number 33, their final entry in the UK charts. Flipper getting well and truly mixed up in James and Bobby Purify's hit Morning Glory. You know, old Cliff Richard is absolutely amazing. I just never know how he manages to keep those creases in his jeans. Incredible. How do you do it, Cliff? Wasted all my time. 
Edmonds, sat on the floor, drops yet another shit joke as he introduces I Can't Ask For Anything More Than You, Babe, by Cliff Richard. We've discussed Harry Webb many a time and oft, most recently in chart music number 35, when he did some danger dancing to Devil Woman. (laughs) And this is the follow-up to that single, which got to number nine in June of this year. It's the third track off the comeback LP, I'm Nearly Famous, which recast him as a contemporary artist, and was written by Ken Gold and Michael Denny, who wrote You To Me at Everything and Can't Get By Without You for the Real Thing. It soared 20 places from number 46 to number 26 this week, and here he is in the studio. This is pretty much Silver Age Cliff, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Cliff had four British hits in 1976, two of which mm. were Devil Woman and Miss Unites. But unfortunately, yeah. we get this, which is mm. sort of part of that micro-renaissance in as much as it's better than most of the other music he ever made. But it's still yeah. fairly poor, you know, and it's hard mm. to look at this and understand who or what it's actually for. You know, he's got his unnervingly natural falsetto and his empty life you know and it uh, I don't know I was listening to this I was thinking he's a bigger influence on today's pop balladeers than you'd ever have expected in this there's a lot of records now which remind me of Cliff except with worse singing because one thing you can say about Cliff is pitching was always perfect Um, and his singing is never more than 15% mannerism which puts him above a lot of present day things. But there's that same thing of just a overpowering wetness and pointlessness and sort of mm. tepid emotional. Oh. Yeah, I mean, you know, with Cliff Richard, you, you, I suppose, you know, quite often you come in with fairly low expectations. And um, yeah, I mean, yes, this yeah. isn't, this is no devil woman. But, um, you know, I didn't think it was so bad just because you can feel all the kind of little elements that are in there that kind of slightly. Boogie, funkish kind of element that's that's in there that probably like you know the the um, composers kind of brought in, but also the musicians. You know, there's tiny sort of inklings of like even things like Little Feet and Doctor John. You know, faint elements of tonk, honky tonk. But yeah, and I mean, you know, he's he's pushing those vocals right up into the upper register. There's no doubt about it. But always, always with Clifford. I remember I think it was Charles Sean Murray reviewing because. Um, Cliff, you know, the bit of revival, we don't talk anymore. Then he put out an album in which he really tried to recast himself in a kind of rock and roll vein. And Charles Sean Murray made the point at the mm. time of review and says that rock and roll has always got to have that whiff of the carnal about it. And of course, there's never any whiff of the carnal about Cliff Richard because of his um, no. his beliefs. Um, and yeah, yeah and it's, it's what's also strange that struck me about this is. And it seems to be a lot that you know. There's obviously a band playing on this record, but he performs conspicuously alone. You know, you, you know, he's not yes. performing with a band as if that would some. I mean, in the lyrics to "Power to All Our Friends," we read "Power to the Boys Who Play Rock and Roll," <laughs> but it's mm. like the the boys playing the so rock and sweet. roll have got to be kind of like you know they've got to be sort of shoved somewhere back in the background or whatever, as if Cliff kind of having some sort of interaction with the boys playing the rock and roll might it's you know he might I don't know catch something or whatever or he might sort of get sort yeah. of infected with a hint of the sexual you know so therefore he has to kind of yeah. be isolated yes. from that and um it's just yeah. cliff solo here and the music kind of coming from the yeah. sky somewhere if, if it's not hank marvin no, then no one's interested yeah yeah, yeah. but also you, do, you don't want to step on the toes of the shads no 
Yeah, a lot of men, a lot of men did, and a lot of men died. <laughs> <laughs> the the key to understanding Cliff in the seventies is looking at his strange relationship with the contemporary, right? Mm. In that, I mean, this is a bloke who was out of date within a few years of his first success. Yeah. Um, and as time went forward, he turned around and started sprinting backwards. So by this point, he's like a relic from another century. But he's a pop artist, right? He might be something else on a spiritual level, like no pun intended, you know, easy listening or stars on Sunday. But he's categorized as pop. So to some extent, he had to live up to that. Um, And every move he ever made, which was even slightly interesting, was the result of this awkward blind date between this this pink-eyed lamb of god and some aspect of late 20th century pop culture now this yeah. this obviously reached its eye-popping peak in the wired for sound video oh yes um with cliff gliding <laughs> through milton Keynes shopping center on roller boots um, <laughs> oh yes but that's only an extension of previous presentation attempts which mm. cast cliff as stranger in a strange land um and i mean this clip here we're only a couple of years down the line from take me high which neil mentioned in the patreon oh yes he did yeah which is a an almost unwatchable and yet amazing film Mm. uh cliff uh for anyone who who doesn't know uh he plays a merchant banker moved against his will to 1970s birmingham where he bangs Victoria out of Doctor Who and opens a fast food restaurant and creates the Brum Burger, which is like a hamburger, uh, except it's in Birmingham. Um, And it's essentially, the reason why it's interesting, apart from the fact that it's like a visual tour of 1970s brutalist uh, Birmingham architecture, um, is that it's basically a film from 1962 Mm. that's been just shunted 10 years forward or 11 years forward into the confusing and 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 colorful early 70s so cliff is a man from 1962 and he's all damp brickwork and church hall sandwich beanos like teleported (laughs) into this weird uh futuristic world of 1970s burger and although this is an attempt to make him seem current and modern um, in fact, it highlights his deep, unworldly weirdness underneath that sort of thin tissue mm. of American showbiz. You know, that affected sort of... He's got that affected nonchalance. He goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, yeah. uh, underneath that, we all know what's there. So now he's in this carefully chosen cheesecloth shirt and, yes. and dad denim. And it's the dad same denim, conflict. Yes. With a matching indigo waistcoat. Westcott's were big in 1976, weren't they? I blame Quo. Right. (laughs) But it's the same decisions being made, right? Yeah. It's which of the tokens of post-Beatles culture can be taken up and used in service of his medieval crusade Mm. (laughs) and which should be suppressed. Yeah. Right. And the result is the same. You get a sort of hollowed out modernity. Yeah, with like this sort of it's this weird you get it's like the air of a, a deserted amusement park yeah. you know like it evacuated because of a sudden outbreak of legionnaires disease yeah or your dad getting new rig out once every couple of years that's that's vaguely yeah. modern that goes out of date very quickly 
it's obviously the primary driving force in his life is his religion, you know, once he converted to his religion. And yet, I mean, at the same time, he's, you know, that you see him, you know, it's a recurring thing that, you know, trying in his own way to kind of keep pace with what's happening, what's going on, to kind of cast himself as relevant, and not just a pop star, but I think with an element of rock as well, you know, going back to that rock and roll thing in 1980. You know, it it seems to be, you know, that seems to be his his, his crusade and his mission. It's almost, you know, that that you can have a form of pop and rock music that is nonetheless consistent with, you know, religiousness and celibacy. It's almost like somebody that's kind of, trying to convince you of the merits of an alcohol free beer or something like that it's it's um <laughs> and um yeah and he, and he 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 tried and he tried and he tried and, you know well into the 80s yeah yeah well i watched the whole of another of his films recently uh, <laughs> oh, uh to a penny it's called it's from psychedelic summer of 1967 but it was wow. funded by billy graham um Ooh. and it has cliff who incredibly is still in his 20s at this point, because it's easy to forget he was the same age as John Lennon. In fact, he was, um, I think he was a week younger than John Lennon. Uh, But, you know, while while John Lennon was was floating in the subversive confusion of I Am The Walrus, Cliff was playing a stroppy youth who turns to God, much to his own surprise after witnessing a lecture by that, poisonous old fraud Billy Graham right Mm. and this film is almost unwatchable too uh, especially because Cliff does like a Mockney accent all the way through and he's in a he's in a corduroy suit skipping around central London like absolute beginners you know what I mean but it's again it's this weird attempt to take someone so fundamentally reactionary and anti-natural and make him seem vital and of the moment even as he's quite explicitly attempting to undermine this new society and any progress that might have been made since Move It, you know. Uh, The best thing you can say about this record is that there's a a nice, inspiring lyrical moment where he (laughs) says, he says, I feel like a slave that has been freed. Oh. Yeah, he's slipping a wink to his black fan base. There. Yeah, oh, very, very Widdicombe that is, isn't it? It really is, yeah. Much appreciated, <laughs> I think. It's like probably how he felt when he played Sun City in the early 80s. Yes. Like liberated, liberated from caring. Yes. <laughs> it's like, you know how the Taliban don't allow music, right? Yeah. Like it's banned, it's, yeah. it's haram. Now, I think this might be why, like, the best music by religious people, and there's been a fair bit of it, is devotional and yeah. sort of dreamy. It's yeah. about transcending worldly concerns, whereas yeah. in, the, in the hands and in the mouths of people like Cliff or Mullah Omar, um, <laughs> for whom religion is about enforcing and reinforcing an earthly lack of freedom, mm. music turns to damp dust. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's So perhaps Cliff made a mistake. If Cliff had taken the same approach to music as the Taliban, yeah. uh, he might have succeeded. But his music acts like a kind of advance warning. It's like the bell around a cat's neck, right? It's <laughs> a, and maybe this was such a giveaway. This was the reason that he was never able to enslave us mm. as he would have wished. So, the following week, I can't ask for any more than you jumped three places to number 23, and three weeks later, it reached its highest position of number 17. The follow-up, Hey Mr. Dreammaker, only got to number 31 in December of this year, 
and he'd only go on to have 55 more top 40 hits. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting this one out, my Radio 1 dancing shoes are hurting. That's the uh, incredible Cliff Richard. You know, when you meet some people in this business, uh, they quite often don't turn out to be quite so pleasant as you imagine. However, our next two guests on Top of the Pops are even more unpleasant than you can ever imagine human beings being. In fact, they must be two of the most awful guys that you could... And the music's all right, but they, as individuals, are just... I watch the distant lights go down the runway Disappear into the evening sky Oh, you know I'm with you on your journey Never could say goodbye Edmund, still on the floor cross-legged, goes into one about the horribleness of the next group, Gallagher and Lyle, and break away. Formed in London in 1972 from the ashes of McGuinness Flint, who were covered in chart music number 38, Benny Gallagher and Graham Lyle had actually known each other since 1959 when they were in a rock and roll band in Log, Scotland, called the Blue Frets. They spent the 60s writing songs for Marmalade and the northern soul singer James Galt and moved to London in the late 60s to work as in-house songwriters at Apple Records. After McGuinness Flint split up, they signed a one-album deal with Capital, and then they signed to A&M and put out four more LPs. But it wasn't until early this year that they finally entered the charts when I Wanna Stay With You got to number six in April, and this is the follow-up to Heart On My Sleeve, which also got to number six in June. It's already been recorded by Art Garfunkel as the title cut of his 1975 LP, and it's also the title cut and third single release from their own LP, and it's not in the charts yet. Yeah, and you have to say, that intro, that private joke oh. intro, mm. it's like Mike Smitty Smith, their names shall go on the list, Edmunds Enablers. Mm. Ugh. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what I really detest about that is that, like, after that, you know, Graham, like, if you had anything about him, Graham Lyle, instead of giving that kind of sort of wry, sort of appreciative glance across to Edmonds, he should have just grimaced and mouthed, what the fuck are you driveling on about, man? <laughs> this comes a distant second to uh, Don't Take Away My Breakaway by Dennis Waterman <laughs> a few years later. <laughs> But it's a nice little potted history of the 70s so far, isn't it? You know, we had Gallagher and Lyle, beardy, trampy, jug band nonsense, and now they've graduated and progressed to to this sort of thing. Heart on my sleeve, I I remember liking a lot of the time, actually. I think it's it's fairly pleasing. Mm. This isn't actually so bad, but it's kind of... No. It's got this feeling of, like, Popper's MFI furniture. It's just got this kind of... um, uh, you know, this is what we're going to have to sort of settle for now because there is not going to be any kind of more, any sort of major revolts or sort of reinfusions of electricity or excitement or whatever. It's all going to settle into this sort of thing, into a sort of MOR torpor right through to the sort of, you know, 
late 70s, 80s, 90s. And, you know, I mean, that blackness I'm constantly referring to, you know, that you get into. Oh, it you, never seemed nev- none blacker. It never seemed blacker. It just seemed like a kind of a jet black uncertainty of like, this is what we're kind of like in a kind of, you know, spaceship towards space 1999 or whatever. This is the blackness into which it will proceed at this kind of steady humdrum pace. Mm. I mean, t- Taylor, do you think the weather had an effect on the charts of uh, the summer of 1976? Because we- we've had a lot of laid-back stuff mixed in with uh, the dance music, haven't we? Yeah, although I'd guess the the recording and release schedule um, would be uh, long enough that you wouldn't be able to uh, yeah. predict this in advance. I think it might have done, actually. It's kind of sweetly torpid, this track, and I think that's kind yes. of... Um, yeah, and it would have been a sort of inertia, I guess, and something like this. This might have like suited the sort of drowsy, fetid sort of mood of the of the times. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is the 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 worst thing about this record. They don't even have the pride to be offensive, you know, or mm. to make something really terrible. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, they came up in conversation a couple of chart musics ago when when it was McGuinness Flint. And yes. I think Pricey said it's a band name that really belongs on a on a yes. real ale chalkboard, or you know, or a bottle of whiskey, or some yeah. quality knitwear. It's mm. not on top of the fucking pops. Um, no, Gallagher I mean, and Lyle sounds like haulage contractors, doesn't it? Now, what can you say about this group? Really, I mean, the best thing you can say about this group is that they're not the same group, but all murderers. And mm. I mean, beyond that, you're struggling because this is. Boring, but it's borderline pleasant, which mm. yeah, it displeases me more than some monstrous bowel blowout by you know Jimmy Osmond or yeah. ELP. Because what can you do with it, right? At least a really yeah. terrible record is stimulating, and this is just too close to being all right. It sounds like yeah. a High Llamas album track. It's like you, but you instantly resent them because in the context of Top of the Pops they appear as the forces of Sunday afternoon do you know what mm. I mean it's like the voice of of non-chocolate digestives and the yes the, the, the steady clunking of the clock on the mantelpiece in the awkward silence and it's a mm. a terrible thing considering the reality of these people's lives as a fairly successful rock group uh, would have been travel performance, creation, freedom, um, and yet this is what they bring in. You know, The 1970s yeah. is wasted on them in the, as yes. much as it was wasted on Cliff, and they don't even have the same excuse. So what's the, no. the most interesting thing you can say about them visually is that the bass player looks like the Shroud of Turin as a younger man. <laughs> but so did everyone's uncle in 1976. Yeah. You know, this is a oh. pitiful return. Yeah, well, things like this and Brian Prothero and things like that. None more 1976. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this has got notes in it, which is almost the same thing as having a tune. Um, and the chorus is what they used to call radio friendly, you know. Mm. But it's like it's like the ghost of a Bee Gees record haunting Nashville, and it's not yeah. good. What pisses me off the most, I think, is that so much work has gone into this. So much work in the musicianship and the production. Um, this will be the product of hours and hours in a studio. And yeah. it's like a team of scientists has been working night and day for 15 years. And then they call a press conference. This is the great unveiling. What have you done? We've managed to synthesize a test tube full of, uh, well, it's a mixture of oxygen, 
nitrogen, argon and traces of carbon dioxide. And it's perfectly breathable and absolutely harmless. All right, so it's air. Yes, that's right, thin air. There you go. You're welcome. Use it wisely. That's what this record's like. Yeah. If they'd done something insane and ridiculous which had objectively spoilt this record, it mm. would have made it better. Mm. And the only interesting thing about this record for me was that it was clear that Kiki D absolutely nicked the fuck out of this song for Star five years later. And I found myself singing along to it. So it goes, I watch the distant lights go down the road. Da-na-na, <laughs> disappear into the evening sky. Da-na-na, whoa, whoa, don't you tell me it's rough. Temporarily social suicide. <laughs> yeah. And that's the only interesting thing about this song. Yeah, they're caught in, in this horrible misconception of what the word quality means mm. in the context of pop yeah. music. That's all I can say. Yeah. Upholstery. Mm, yeah. Good word. There will not be time in anybody's life to listen to Gallagher and Lyle, <laughs> however painless it might be. One good thing about their music, when it hits you, you feel no pain, as, as Bob Marley said about Gallagher and Lyle. <laughs> Three weeks later, Breakaway entered the chart at number 43, would drop to number 47 and then rise up to number 35, its highest position. The follow-up, Every Little Teardrop, got to number 32 in January of 1977, would be their last chart hit and they split up for the first time in 1980. Breaking away, that was Gallagher and Lyle, of course. Oh, is that, oh, great, that's from, from them, is it? Oh, excellent. Oh, they're not so bad after all, quite nice fellows. Now, of course, Kiki D and Elton John have been at the top now for some five weeks, and, well, we can't show the same film over... Yay! Yay! No, we can't, we Yay! can't. Yay! supposed to say that, they We wanted to dance, didn't we? We wanted to dance. We're going to dance. At least I'm not going to dance. They're, they're going to dance. Edmonds, finally surrounded by the kids, goes through the pantomime of being slipped a massive pound note from Gallagher and Lyle before announcing that we can't see the video for the number one because it's been shown for the past month or so to the very overexcited reaction of one woman who looks a bit not right. As he introduces Don't Go Breaking My Heart by Elton John and Kiki D. We've already covered this song, the Rocket Man's first sniff of the number one arse, in chart music number 35, and it's now in its sixth week at number one, not fifth, Edmunds. <laughs> Even though it's 1976, Top of the Pops is clearly sick to death of the promo video, which features Elton as Reg Holdsworth doing a bit of karaoke with a better by Till Girl <laughs> in, in Gladys Pugh's broadcast station at Maplin's, and have let Ruby Flipper out of their cage for another cavort, as the kids look 
on. Yeah, and that that woman that uh, well, I say woman, she's probably about fifteen, yeah. but <laughs> you have yeah. to say woman. She looks like a young Liz Smith. If that's not another actress, yes, face is yes, disengaged. Um, and yes. yeah, yeah, she really does seem tremendously keen to see the video rather than what we actually get. And who can blame her? Mm. <laughs> Do you really think that they, they decided not to show the video? Still 1976, videos are still rare and precious things. And it's it's not like it's been on telly all the time. Yeah. The dance routine, which I'm doing same with air quotes, is extremely perfunctory. Mm. Uh, I get the impression from it that it was like, oh shit, the, the tape snapped. Uh, get Ruby Flipper on to do something. But it could be that, or maybe you know, uh, Flipper was making some sarcastic point about you know because it was Bill Cotton or whatever, didn't it? Who, who um, basically sort of put the kibosh on Ruby Flipper, and just maybe it's just like working them and just like rubbing Ruby Flipper in your face this one last time at every opportunity. It's about the fifth or sixth appearance or something, yeah. isn't it? It's it's uh, yeah. bizarre. But but Ruby Flipper and, and rubbing in your face, they don't go together yeah. really. It's more of a spit into the handker <laughs> and a dab yes. on the face. <laughs> It's not really a dance routine, is no. it? It's basically the audience standing there with their arms folded, mm. watching Ruby Flipper wearing the same shit that they wore in the previous dance, just just freestyle. Mm. Watching that, it reminded me of um, when I was working on the wank mags, and every now and then I'd have to go to places like Torture Garden and, and all these <laughs> kinds of places, and there'd be just a load of people just standing there watching the sex people. You know, people who've spent 300 quid on a fucking dog collar and who all know each other, just doing their pieces. And everyone else is just standing there going, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Me and Teller have already discussed this song. Mm. The thumb was kind of wavering in the... It was about about 15 degrees Mm. in in an upward direction. You know, we we conceded that it was a good song. Mm. Uh, So, yeah, David, all yours. I liked it at the time, and it is a kind of reminder when a song being number one for a long time, it was like a heat wave. I mean, you know, pop music was like the weather. Everyone knew when Wet, Wet, Wet was number one for, like, weeks and weeks and yeah. weeks. Everyone knew that, like, this has been number one for weeks and weeks and weeks. Now, I mean, like, you know, you have to kind of go and look on the internet if you want to find out what's number one. I mean, you know, it's just a sort of lovely sort of, you know, after that entire unifying summer when we all celebrated the heterosexuality of Elton John. Yes. You know, it's got that kind of sort of white Philly thing <laughs> that he's doing. I wouldn't say shaking Philly, yeah. but it's because it's, it's more sort of adept at that, I think, you know, in terms of like, you know, sort of taking that particular sound. and It's more, it's more it. Pittsburgh soul than Philadelphia soul is what you're saying there. Yeah, I think probably so. Yeah, yeah. It's the kind of soul that would... Yeah, I mean, sort of near to Philadelphia, yeah, but not Pittsburgh. quite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like Shelbyville to, um, yeah, Springfield yes. sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. Something like that night. But no, it was... Um, it was joyful enough, I suppose. The the dance routine as such, you know. Mm. Floyd's got two girls on the go, which must have upset some dads. Yeah. It's like a load of mates at the school disco, isn't it? Yeah. Turning the back on the flea bags of uh, yeah. of, of the school, which are the audience and, and us, actually. And it's Yeah, and it's it's got a kind of like, you know, last afternoon at school before the holidays feel, so it's a bit shambolic. For some reason, it, I started thinking of the dwarves that dance around the, um, you know, the 18-inch Stonehenge triptych in Spinal yes. Tap. <laughs> yes. Just, just <laughs> shambles or whatever, you know. Um I don't know if you spot it, but during this performance or whatever, just near the end, it looks like Edmonds is about to touch the breast of one of the women next to him, and then just the last second yeah. thinks better of it. Oop, cameras. 
the Floyd dilemma could have been solved massively easily by just having a black female dancer yeah. for him to dance with at all times. Like when in Sergeant Bilko, yeah. when, uh, you know, the, the best girls come that's to the right, dance yeah, and everything. Yeah. All the black soldiers have got girlfriend, a black girlfriend. Right, yeah. Yeah. Should have got um, Barbie out of uh, Love Thy Neighbor. Yeah, yeah the, the only visible black woman in 1970s Britain. Yes, everything. exactly. Oh, apart yeah. from Fluella Benjamin, yeah, yeah, that was a bit later on, though. Yeah, I suppose. No, I know what you mean. It's like they did it in Grey Jill as well. It was like there was a yes. one uh, in the sort of mid eighties. Grey Jill, there was one black lad and one black girl in the class, and at the school disco, they. What do you know? Yeah, hey, guess what? We've got so much in common. Same as when you would have black characters in seventies <laughs> uh, TV. And they were trying to show them sympathetically. Yeah. Even so, the only topic yeah. of conversation, even in private, was about how they were black. <laughs> That's all they wanted to talk about. Yes. Very odd. I mean, if there's one good thing to be said about this decade, is that now you can turn on the telly and watch an advert and there'll be mixed race couples in it. Mm. And, um, you know, they'd be carrying on as if that was a completely normal thing, which it fucking right. has been for decades. Yeah. But occasionally a white man would be allowed to show the anti-racist credentials of his character by having a black girlfriend. Yes. Oh, yeah. Like the the uh, all-time great professionals episode, Clansmen, which... Yes, yeah. I, knew, I knew this was going to come <laughs> up. Far too much to get into now. With that. Oh, no, come on, Taylor. Out with it. Which takes the daring standpoint that racism is bad. And uh, shows you this through having one of the main heroes of the show Mm. call people dirty spades and things and be a complete racist all the way through it until he gets stabbed uh, by some Mm. black blokes and then has his life saved by a black doctor and nurse. And uh, at the end, waltzes off arm in arm with a black nurse, uh, a reformed character. Despite the fact that this woman's only experience of this bloke is him waking up calling her a dirty spade while she's trying to save his life but it it doesn't matter doesn't matter (laughs) that wasn't the episode of the professionals where they had to uh they had to sort out the the keep africa white movement was it no that was a different one this is the one we featured the guy from porridge yeah good luck with that that featured the guy from Porridge, didn't it? And it was a, it involved a nuclear, didn't it involve um, a nuclear bomb or something? Yeah, in a bowling alley in Hemel Hempstead. That's right. Yeah, but, yeah. Yes. No, this is the one with Edward Judd of Think Once, Think Twice, Think Bike fame as oh. the <laughs> the leader of a a British KKK. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the terrible thing about this spectacle, right, of the audience dancing here. Uh, it struck me, we as a nation historically have tended to snigger at Germans in terms of pop and fashion, right? Mm. As though there's just some some innate superiority. But on this programme, yeah. not only have a German band turned up and stolen the show, um, yes. speaking of Blackfoot Sue, as I was earlier, the clip of them mm. playing Standard in the Road on 1970s German TV, that also has a dancing audience. And they look... Mm. 1,000 times as interesting and lively and exotically dressed as this collection of fucking high street zombies that you see here, right? It's not a myth that the fizz had gone out of the 70s to a great extent by this point. It's just, it's, I mean, there's like a a fashion parade of, it's like the full gamut of mid-70s streetwear from, from badly cut, 
pale blue flannel leisure tops to poorly fitting white crimpling trouser suits for the ladies. And it all looks like the rags that are left once retro fashion has dined and departed. It's like if you've got an early 90s Oxfam shop just after Jarvis Cocker has left. <laughs> this is what this is what's left. And you want to be understanding because yes. it's the general public and, you know. But yeah. ultimately, no, it's a bunch of suburban nobodies who look like they comb their hair with bacon, just shifting from <laughs> foot to foot as though they're trying to evenly distribute the weight of their cultural desolation. Uh, and you can't. And I thought I'll sit down and try and pick out members of the audience to say something funny about. And you can't. You can't. Yeah. There's one lad who looks like Eric Bristow. Oh yes, in the condorest collars ever. Yeah. And he's next to a girl who looks like Dennis Waterman in the Sweden. Right. There's a lot of sleeves rolled up, obviously because of the weather. Well, it's a bit warm. But yeah. I recall seeing many people in vests or shorts with vents or anything like that. No. It's like, oh, so it's summer, so what? I'll just roll my sleeves up and get on <laughs> yeah. with it. Oh, and there's the there's the bloke who looks like he lost the part of Carlin in Scum to Ray Winston. <laughs> yes. Maybe kept on as an understudy. But yeah, apart from that, it's just scores of, of sullen-faced typists mm. and uh, skull drinkers in sweatbands <laughs> just yeah. waiting for something to happen. But... The worst thing of all is that they don't look miserable. No. They look sullen, no. but they don't look miserable. No. Because if they were unhappy with their lot, it might have inspired them to some kind of action. At the end of the day, they are looking at some girls in their pants. Mm. And and in Lulu's case, the one with the interesting curly hair thing going on, she's 16 yeah. at the time. Yes. And looks younger. Mm. Because this is a song that has imposed a cruel reign over the summer of 1976. There's no other song. This is, this is it. And Edmunds signs off the show like this. I don't know. It's like the retreat from Moscow set to music. I hope you've enjoyed this programme. We're going to continue. And with a bit of luck, I'll get out of here alive. See you on The Breakfast Show tomorrow. Bye-bye. <laughs> The retreat from Moscow of 1812 resulted in the deaths of at least 380,000 French soldiers due to disease, exhaustion and attacks by Russian peasants seeking revenge. According to historical records, it did not involve at all a load of youths in flares and waistcoats looking at some girls dancing in their pants. <laughs> what a fucking ridiculous thing for Edmonds to say yeah. there. I mean, just, just, you almost feel like, you know, one becomes eventually, through experience, you become a sort of Edmonds whisperer, you know, like, what the fuck are you on about, man? And you think, <laughs> why is he... And it, oh, yeah. it's because they're high-kicking, and that's a bit like, you know, kind of Cossack dancing. Yeah. He's awful at punchlines, yeah. Edmonds is. I mean, that the, the great gas disco advert, mm. he finishes off with, I've never eaten yeah. so well in my life. <laughs> it's like, fucking hell, no, no you, you're on your way to becoming a fucking millionaire. Surely you've eaten something better than a sausage <laughs> from a fucking oven in a disco. Surely. <laughs> he is the cunt to end all cunts, isn't he, basically? So, the following week, the rain fell down and the spell was broken and Don't Go Breaking My Heart dropped two places to number three. Finally relieved of its duties at the top of the summit by last week's number 16, Dancing Queen by ABBA. 
Yay. The follow-up, True Love, spent two weeks at number two in November of 1993, held off the top spot by the anti-cock-and-ball-torture diatribe, I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that, by Meatloaf. (laughs) And the single would go on to become the second biggest selling 45 of 1976, between Save All Your Kisses For Me by the Brotherhood of Man. Anyone want to take a guess what the third best-selling single of 1976 was? Hmm. No charge. No. Mississippi by Pussycat. Of course. course. Missing from from our thoughts the same way as it's missing from everyone's memory of 1976. Meanwhile, Ruby Flipper continued dancing and a-prancing all the way to death row, and they were not happy about it. According to an interview with Philip Steggles in 2014, Flick said to me that there hadn't been one letter to indicate that anyone was missing Pan's people. One of the reasons given to Flick was that the ratings had gone down slightly. Now, this was when the Bionic Woman had just started on the other channel, so it seems ridiculous that we could be blamed for the ratings going down. Especially as it was 85 degrees outside and still daylight. (laughs) does tend to have a bit of an impact on the ratings of a long-running programme. Exactly. He went on to say, The other reason given in the letter, though, was that, quote, Young teenage boys watching their favourite music programme would not want to see white girls dancing with black boys and then lifting them. (laughs) A month after this episode, Cherry Gillespie left the group to pursue a theatre career and made appearances in Minder, The Bitch, Metal Mickey, Octopusse and Crown Court (laughs) before becoming a key component of the Hot Shoe Show. What a fucking great CV that is. (laughs) Yeah. Ruby Flipper's final appearance came on the 14th of October when they bowed out to the sound of Play That Funky Music by Wild Cherry. However, they continued to exist as a troupe, performing in the German TV show Schlager Festival 1927 a year later. (laughs) And in adverts for Legs and Co. in the stage for the rest of the 70s, people looking to make a booking were advised to contact their management, Ruby Flipper. Philip Steggles went on to form his own troupe, Philip Hay and Wild Cover, and they worked with Ken Dodd, Windsor Davis, and performed for the troops in Belfast. Lulu Cartwright, Patty Hammond and Suma Hennick were kept on in the new troupe who made their debut the week after, who were unnamed for three weeks until a competition on Blue Peter came up with Legs and Co. As for Floyd Pierce, he was drafted in for nine appearances with Legs and Co. from December 1976 to December 1978, by which time he had joined Arlene Phillips' troupe Hot Gossip where he got to throw about and grind against white girls in their pants to supernature on the Kenny Everett video show. And when Hot Gossip recorded the LP Geisha Boys and Temple Girls in 1981, produced by Martin Ware of Heaven 17, Pierce was the lead singer, and he also was a member of Who Cares, the ensemble who recorded the charity single Doctor in Distress yes. in 1985. Yeah, sweet revenge for Floyd there, I think. Well done, that lad. <laughs> so what was on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One piles into Happy Ever After, the prequel to Terry in June, where their son returns from Hong Kong with his fiance, and we learn that Terry and June have had sexual intercourse at least once. 
<laughs> and then Raymond Baxter and William Woolard present The Risk Business, the series about industrial democracy and worker participation. After that, it's the 9 o'clock news, the fourth part of Sailor, the documentary series about the Ark Royal, and then a repeat of Play for Today's Just Another Saturday about a Belfast flute band during marching season, and they finish off the night with Alan Sings Price, a collection of the pianist's greatest hits recorded in Manchester. BBC Two is halfway through Word of Mouth, a documentary series presented by Melvin Bragg, which this week looks at the Scouse dialect, followed by repeats of documentaries on L.S. Lowry and Edward Elgar as part of BBC Two's Festival 40, the year-long series which marks the 40th anniversary of the BBC. Then it's the guitarist Joe Pass in concert, the documentary series Inside Story about an early 70s miscarriage of justice, Newsnight and the highlights of the cricket. ITV still has another hour and a half of those magnificent men in their flying machines. Then it's this week, News at 10, Gardening Today, a repeat of The Prisoner, and they finish off with five minutes of religious blather, because it's still the 70s. (laughs) So, me boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? Well, sadly, I should have been talking about Can, but I probably would have been talking about Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Mm. Yeah, or ruby flippers, ungainliness and horrible knickers. And what are we buying on Saturday? Can, Bee Gees, Chai Lights. Those are the three uh, great records mm. on this programme. Mm. There's a few other good ones, but those are the only ones worth spending money on, I would say. I would like to have said I've bought the Can and Chai Lights. And I, I probably would have bought the Bee Gees, Um Maybe the Manfred Mann is a sort of, you know, top-up to my existing Manfred Mann collection. And what does this episode tell us about August of 1976? Uh, yeah, like I say, it's just that no-one... A bit like 1962 and its trad, you know, just before the Beatles, and I don't think anybody had a clue where things were going next. But we know, don't we, kids? Yes, yeah. Sex Pistols playing the 100 Club next Tuesday, don't you know? Yeah. Yeah, but for now, drifting, drifting... Mm. This is not a boom time, but from this remove, malaise at least looks more appealing than crisis, right? You get the impression that Mm. this is a world where what little fun there is can at least be savoured and fully experienced without that modern edge of panic and desperation. These people are a long way from shore, but not drowning, waving to their mums. And always remember, much as they've all been on top of the pops and we haven't, these people were happier than anyone in Britain had ever been before, and we've not never been that happy since. So this show actually represents yeah. peak happiness. Doesn't show, does it? No. <laughs> <laughs> and that, me dears, is the end of this episode of Chart Music. All that remains is the usual promotional flange www.chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast get us on twitter at chartmusictotp money down the g-string patreon.com slash chartmusic thank you ever so much Taylor Parks alright god bless you David Stubbs and god bless you Mr Needham my name's Al Needham and I bid you food feces and farewells <laughs> <laughs> Chart music.
I've got a new rally. Quite right, too. Uh, I've got a new rally. It's the most popular bike in Britain. Hey, I've got a new rally. Blur, I've got a new rally. Yes, it's got style. I've got a new rally. I ride rally for a living. Blur's got a new rally. buy a sports jacket from Mr. Bojangles. You can pick up a pair of trousers absolutely free. Hello there, welcome to the Cookability Roadshow. Music, dancing, and when we feel hungry, a little bit of cooking. Yvonne, that's great. That's because gas is so easy. Yes, and it's so much cheaper as well. Right. Meanwhile, Glenn is doing the famous milk test. <laughs> Nice one, Glenn. Yes, and when it comes to cooking... I couldn't have put it better myself. Oh, you've got to admire Edmunds. Yeah, he's a veritable maestro of mirth. He's changed the shape of family entertainment across the nation. Would it be trying to change the shape of your hula hoops, so, eh, Frank? I should say, hey, Edmunds, no! Just cos you've got a crinkly bottom don't mean hula hoops should! Hula hoops are rad! They're staying rad and they'll be a rad forever! This is where all the engineering skills and advanced technology that go into building Austin Rover cars can be put to the ultimate test. But what happens before that test? This is Austin Rover's Advanced Electro-Hydraulics Laboratory. Now, this Austin maestro has already been through 40 hours of non-stop computer-controlled punishment. This whole laboratory is dedicated to testing components right up to their limits. And it's this kind of testing which gives Austin Rover the confidence to put their cars to the ultimate test. Austin Rover. Driving is believing. Geezer in the city. Real rough stuff, not too pretty. But he still recalls that fateful day. His mum said, I'll take away your breakaway. That's real milk top around a tasty biscuit. I'll take away your breakaway. She could be bluffing, but he couldn't risk it. Okay, you win. I'll lose your say. Don't take away my breakaway. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.